All right. Hey, everyone. It's Dave. Quick bit of business before we get this episode going. I was talking to my buddy John from Infinity Sauces about the episode today, and he said, well, I just released a new seasonal sauce through Infinity Sauces. It's called Hatchquatch. I have a hard time saying that. Hatchquatch. It's like a, a, a Sasquatch-themed hot sauce through Infinity Sauces, and it's roasted hatch chilies, roasted garlic, roasted jalapeno, yellow cardi pepper, the other good stuff they throw in the sauces. He was telling me about it. He says it has an amazing sweetness and smokiness of the famous New Mexico hatch peppers. They're hand-picked in New Mexico, and then they roast them for them locally. All right, you know what? I'm going to read you what it says about the sauce. It's more mild on the palate than most of their sauces, and it boasts the freshest flavor in their line. It's available only for a short time, from harvest time in August until it's gone. August, it's been up for a while now, which means you need to go and get some of that sauce at infinitysauces.com. Now look, I know, it's an ad, right? So you're like, well, sure, they're just trying to sell me something. Here's the deal that Infinity Sauces has made for nobody's nose for this podcast where I've known you too long. You don't have to take their word for it. You can go ahead and get a taste for free. Email Infinity Sauces your address. Send them an email to infinitysauces at gmail.com. Put, I've known you too long, in the subject line of the email, and they're going to mail you a free sample bottle of the sauce. I know a bunch of people, friends of mine, who listen to this podcast who have done that and love the sauce. Now, they're probably not going to send you the limited edition Hatchquatch. That's one you're going to have to go out on a limb and get. But it's probably worth it. Because it's Sasquatch-themed. It's Bigfoot's hot sauce. Come on. For this episode, this just seemed perfect. And it was a complete coincidence. I didn't know that Infinity was going to do a Sasquatch-themed sauce. And I didn't know that I was going to get to do this interview with Renee. It just came together. It just seemed to happen like it was meant to be. And that's kind of a theme of the episode. You'll hear it when you listen to it. Sometimes it just seems like things are meant to be. So, Infinity Sauces, check them out. Go to the blog page. I'll have an image up for the sauce. There'll be information there. Send them an email. Get some free sauce. Just get some free sauce. You got to try it out. It's fantastic. I love it when friends do well, and this is a friend doing very well. And speaking of friends doing well, we've got our other regular sponsor for this podcast, Black Crown Car. BlackCrownCar.com. Get the app. Get it on your phone. Use them for rides in the Seattle area. They're fantastic. They're still with us. They're still awesome. Give it a go if you're not already using it. That's those are the guys. Those are those are my guys. They 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 like what I do. I like what they do. So all right, now that you know, let's get on to the episode. Here we go. Welcome back to I've known you too long. Today's episode is different. I'm violating my own rules and I'm doing it for a good reason. But on this show, as you know if you've listened to it, I interview people that I've known for a long time. The rule I've set for myself has been 15 years or more and most of the people I know from the music scene. This one's a little bit different. I had an opportunity to do this interview and I'm gonna take it because it's my show and I can break the rules when I want to. My guest today is Renee Holland. You may know Renee from a show on Animal Planet called Finding Bigfoot. She's the skeptic. She's the scientist. She is sitting right here in front of me now for this podcast. Hello, Renee. Hey there, Dave. How are you? I, I'm doing good. I, I, I get to spend some time with you. I'm excited and stoked for that, but I'm, I'm going to make you feel a little bit better right off the bat. Okay. If you think about this, 
we mess with a little bit of uh, quantum physics, what is time? I mean, we have the quality of quantity, so I could argue how long we've known each other. We, we, we could debate that. And um, I, I am a teeny-weeny bit of a musician, so, you know. I was certainly not trying to insult. <laughs> I'm just talking about the, the way that I met you. And, and it, clearly, this is still connected to the music scene. We did meet each other because of connections to that's the music true, scene. That's true. But it's... It's not the same as the other episodes. It's, you didn't know me when I was younger. Mm-hmm. But like when we talked about, would you come on and do this episode? I said, I feel like I've known you forever. I felt like I knew you forever immediately upon meeting you. And that was an odd thing. So it's still going to be interesting. <laughs> and I'm still going to be able to find out your whole story. And people might be more interested in hearing your story than anybody else I've had on the show. Well, plus we were in that hot tub time machine and we we messed with it physics and everything so it's it's as if we have known each other forever since before birth if you will i i appreciate that someone with an actual science background is willing to uh, mess around with stuff like this you know and also (laughs) i've known i've known about this blog for a bit and i have intentionally not listened to it because um i didn't want to have a preconceived notion i wanted to be completely organic so i am excited to do this so that I can now listen to all of the back interviews because I know some of the folks have been on those and I know they're really good. Thank you for saying so. I hope you think so once you've listened to them. <laughs> all right, Renee, I start the questioning by telling the person I've known you too long. And it's just not true because I've known you for, we were figuring out earlier, maybe five years. Mm-hmm. But just for the sake of it, Renee, I've known you too long. I haven't known you long enough, Dave. Oh, <laughs> Wait, did you say have known me long enough or haven't? I haven't. Okay. You've got a quiet voice. i got to get you turned up a little bit. I just haven't known you long enough. It's like I never get to see you. You know, in that five years, of course, has been the production of Finding Bigfoot. So you've seen me on these little bursts, these little vacations, if you will, with uh, April and Rocky. And it's never, I mean, it's never enough. So it's all quality, not quantity. Oh, thank you. It, we're we're so just to getting, me, it's not enough. We're just getting started. Yeah. So the way that I met you was very strange. And for a lot of people on the show, we can't figure out the exact moment, the exact time we met or why. But we know when we met. Mm-hmm. We met at a party at my house. And when I say my house, please, it's Michael Ann's house. <laughs> I live in it. <laughs> Michael Ann owns a house. And for some reason, she puts up with me and I live in it with her. I thought it was Winnie's house. Well, the dog, yeah. it's <laughs> from the dog's point of view, it's certainly his house. Yes. But um, we were having a party and it was specifically an art auction for Rocky Votolato's son, Keenan. Keenan Votolato was at the time, he had to be 11 years old. Yeah. 10 or 11. And he did, uh, he does amazing artwork, paintings that were way, way beyond the skill level for his age. And we thought it would be fun. We had a room that we had just remodeled and painted. We thought it would be fun to hang up a bunch of his paintings and everybody wanted them. Like every, all Rocky's friends, Rocky and April's friends really wanted these paintings. So we hung up like an art exhibit and then people came in and actually we had a silent auction. There was, I don't know, you know, I missed the silent auction because what I remember of that day is Keenan was, he was a boy still. And now when I look back at this is a young man. And I think back about how long that was, but yet I don't get enough of it again with you, Dave. Well, but it's what past, I, it, must have, it must be weird because you've been gone so much in the time since. Yeah, it's just, again, see time, what is time? It's all relative. But what I do recall of that day is missing the silent auction because I wanted to bid on some of these. I, I remember, I, I believe it was that owl. There was an owl. Oh, that was a fantastic owl yeah. painting. There were paintings that were just incredible. 
Now, did you, so you weren't here for it at all. You came after? I think I, so the silent auction was over. The silent auction had, had since passed and I got to glance at all of the things I missed upon yet again with a tear <laughs> rolling down my cheek and oh. trembling off my chin. Before I fell. <laughs> and there were, there were like some real battles for for some of the art i saw blood on the ground well this kid he made hundreds of dollars <laughs> like he was like a working artist that day he's talented that was, that was good work so there's i know most everyone there that was that was normal but then there's you and someone i think michael and said dave have you met renee and i think like you said you came along after the auction we were just doing like barbecue hanging out outside and i said no and sat down and it was like click we just started talking and we somehow, you, I, everyone tried to drag me into telling my Bigfoot story, which is something people try to get me to do. And I don't do it in a, a setting of people that I don't trust. And I can't remember if I told you that story that day. I think I might have. It's the, may I? I I'm not going to, I, I won't tell it on this show. Okay. Can I give a small reference? A small reference. Um, an outdoor shed and a very large dog. Okay, wait a minute. You're saying shed and dog, that's that's really not it. That's not now, it. Now, you're saying that I recall, you believe that, that it was a dog. I rec- No, no. I recall the story that you told me to protect the privacy <laughs> and not share too much. To reference it, I can see you sitting in the chair telling me that day at the barbecue. I can, I can see your face. And um, you described it very well. Train tracks, there was a shed involved, and there's a dog okay. in the story. Okay. In so, the, excuse me, report. No, and here's what I'm here's what I'm going to say. There were multiple elements to my story, some that I experienced and some that were told to me later involving another member of my family. That's where things like train tracks and dog come in. Mm-hmm. And the fact that I told you that stuff upon our first meeting is testament to how just how how connected I felt to you right away and the fact that you I don't know what you guys have been talking about cuz the Bigfoot show that you are on was not on the air yet. Mm-mm, it had not yet aired. So I think it was just Bigfoot on the brain. I think you knew you were doing it because it was really quickly, like right after that, that the thing came on. Mm-hmm. So you may have just been kind of like getting getting people's testing the water with how people felt about the idea of Bigfoot stories. Well, we had at well we had done production. We had done production. It just had not aired yet. Oh, you had actually gone out. Mm-hmm. You'd gone out in the field and had, and filmed had, one. Correct. Yes, oh. and I'd been on the field. We had we'd produced. I believe at that point it had been six episodes. The initial first season, which is a short season, which is six. So, but, oh, I didn't know any of that. Yeah, no, we just you were just a cool person that showed up at the house, and it was like, hey, look, a new friend. Um, which that's that's fantastic. And then of course I remember once everyone left, I was like, hey, who who is that person? Like, why why? Who know who knows Renee? And Michael was like, someone Rocky and April now. I'm like, yeah, okay, fantastic. So that's the meeting, and we've been. We were fast friends and we've been friends ever since. So the question is, who are you and how did you get to being in my house that day? Well, who am I? I'm still trying to figure that out. I know that um, I'm temporally speaking an adult, but I still feel like a young child in the best way. And that's intentional. But um, who am I? I'm, I'm this uh, goofy action nerd that embraces curiosity and, and staying young and, and being happy and stopping and smelling the roses. I am somebody who enjoys quality people, uh, and as you know, April and Rocky are two of the best people on this planet, the entire Votolato clan. I, I love all of them. I cherish them. Um, you want to talk about some rocks? So knowing how important you and Michael Ann are to April and Rocky, 
I so I have to say going in I was um I already had an idea I knew that you you must be an amazing person how much they love you and how well they speak of you so I knew you were somebody I definitely wanted to meet and like you said immediately hit it off well I'm gonna have to make a rule right now it can't nothing else can be complimentary well I'd actually heard that you had a real temper and you were a real (laughs) jerk and they just didn't know why they were still friends something like that would probably work yeah otherwise I'm gonna get this big head and my headphones I pay them anymore. a lot I pay them a lot of money there we go okay <laughs> Michael Ann has claimed for oh coming up on 20 years now that she's only with me because my friends paid her so <laughs> yes yeah, so I'm, I'm another one of those so if I recall correctly um I was on a break see we had done production we were on the break you were good at keeping this a secret getting ready to air I could not discuss a lot I don't know if that even ever came up I I, I don't recall that part but I was wanting to spend some more time with Rocky and April. And if I recall, it was, uh, April was like, you must come. You've got to meet Michael, Ann, and Dave. You're going to love them. And I do. Oh, thank you. She was right. Oh, April's boy. always right. A- April is frequently right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So how did you meet Rocky and April? Um, so I was in a motorcycle endorsement class. You know, the funny thing with Bigfoot is, you know, Bigfoot is my dad to me. So when I was a little kid, testing stunt gear, riding motorcycles, cheesy Bigfoot stories in search of, I come out to Washington State all these years later. When my dad passed away in 03, I wanted that old school Triumph motorcycle that we used to ride together. And I wanted to find that old cheesy Bigfoot movie that I have this very distinct memory from seeing at the K Cinema in Sioux Falls when I was probably five. And nobody knew about the motorcycle part. Because it was in a garage, slowly getting you know, put back together. They only knew about me running down cheesy Bigfoot stories. So. But um, I did. I had this motorcycle, so I went and got my endorsement. And it was during an endorsement class that I met Rob Pope. In fact, he's, he's, riding, he's riding in circles, practicing to do his test. Cause I actually, and the endorsement class for the motorcycle, that's like you get a special license or get a special certificate that allows you to legally drive the motorcycle on the street? Exactly, yeah. Okay, so, just in case people didn't know. What motorcycle endorsement class. I don't know what car endorsement class car like i mean yeah well i don't know why don't they say motor- getting my motorcycle license that's interesting yeah, good point i never thought about it that way is it a separate license or is it just like a an addition to you your know license? i i know what it is you have your driver's license and it's the endorsement yeah like you can be um you know the i'm in a total loss for the word of the very <laughs> large there's a classification cv okay i'm i'm drawing a blank oh for like driving large vehicles like mm-hmm. trucks and yeah, yeah just going right over my head my mother used to drive a large van for the um treatment center she worked for Mm -hmm. when i was in high school and she had to get a special license for that yeah so you have your driver's license you get endorsed so additionally you can ride a motorcycle so there i am and you met someone there yeah there i am and uh, i actually had completed the class but you have to do one last phase and my class you know a month before were was rained out so i had returned to do this one last piece and it happened to be during Rob Pope's class. So now, it, who is Rob Pope? Rob Pope is Motorcycle Rob. Motorcycle. Which everyone laughs now when they hear me for, refer to <laughs> Rob Pope. And this goes universal with all his friends. And I was at his wedding. I'm like, so how do you know Rob? Oh, Motorcycle Rob. I love it. Wait, what'd you call him? So I, uh, <laughs> Rob Pope is, uh, well, this is how I met him. This is who he is to me. Who is Rob Pope? This is Rob Pope to me. I, so I see this guy. With a tight jacket on and some really nice shoes. And I was, I was talking to my girlfriend at the time. And I said, I'm like, babe, I gotta let you go. There's this man I have to go talk to. 
And speaking of just instant connections, Rob is one of those people the second we met and randomly met, we've been the closest of friends ever since. So um, I walk up to them, you know, they've all parked their bikes and I walk up. I'm like, look, guys, this is a test you're doing. Here's your tricks. Here's how you pass it. Who's having a hard time with the box? Do you know about the box? No. The box is like the hardest part of the motorcycle endorsement test for, for people who have difficulty with it. It's it's not hard, in my opinion. But we start talking and get this kinship. And from there, as, as we're walking around, I think he asks what I do. And I'm a research biologist. And, you know, I work with rivers and brown bears and salmon, et cetera. And, well, what do you do? And he's like, oh, I own a coffee shop or something like that. I was like, oh, which one? And, but it was in Kansas. And I'm like, well, what are you doing in Seattle? Are you here for a coffee fair? Well, no, and I'm a musician, too. And he's like okay yeah what bands so it's like well i play with the get up kids and i didn't know who they were so he just kind of looks at me and is like and i play in spoon i'm like well okay i like them and we just pfft. and you'd heard of spoon so it's the get up kids and spoon and well he was also in white whale or something i i don't i didn't know him <laughs> at all from any of the, any of his but you, you had bands. heard of spoon at that point yeah i knew of but, spoon i mean i i like some i mean this is <laughs> i gotta be careful i'm saying i like spoon i like some of spoon songs i've gone to spoon concerts and since you've become aware of the get up kids and seen the get up kids yes exactly okay. learned more it's open so that's rob and uh through rob uh, at one time um is very close with the Votolato family and uh, was introduced to them and and rob left me and moved to New York, and uh, I shed a tear that ran down and trembled on, fell from my chin. And uh, I'm kidding. And unfortunately for me, though, is uh, as he introduced me to the Votoados, obviously, there's just, it's this family that keeps, you meet one and how wonderful they are, and then you meet another one who's equally wonderful, and there's, and they live all local. So, so thank you. You're like, oh, these are people that aren't going to leave. Yeah, these are people (laughs) who live here. Nice and close. Okay. So Rob introduced you to the Votolatos and then the die was cast. You were in with us. Now you can't get out. Oh, you try to pull me away. <laughs> Just try. <laughs> so uh, how long before the party did that happen? Mm, four years. Oh, okay. So you've been kicking around for knowing the Votolatos and knowing Rob and all that. Oh, I'm sorry. Rob would be four years maybe. And then I guess two and a half three so i knew i knew brandy first she was the first one i knew okay now that's brandy, brandy Votolato. brandy Votolato. <laughs> and i knew brandy first and then brandy while we were out and about and because brandy lives in los angeles she's excuse mm-hmm. me she's one you know i said they're all here but they're not there's there's the one she was Votolato. here right right but since i've known her she's always lived in los angeles yeah. so i meet her and while she's in town she's like oh you're gonna love so-and-so you're gonna love so-and-so and so-and-so and it's again she was right but uh uh, I slowly met the Votolatos, which I guess was in, no, I, I guess Cody's youngest. So it, was a re, it was almost a reverse age order, but not. When when did you get, okay, what year did you go to this motorcycle class? I'm trying to pin, I'm trying to get an idea of the time. Oh, eight? Oh, eight. Oh, eight, oh, seven or oh, eight. Okay, so that's a couple years before you meet me. Mm-hmm. Before you meet Michael and before you meet me. Okay, and what were you doing before that? What was I, you mean, in my, in my free time? I guess we're going to have to, so we're going to, we're going to basically... I mean, yes, <laughs> but more. <laughs> so, so we're going to, I'm going to break this all down. So prior to, to you being here, I have no idea what you did with your life. I just know that it was um, smart stuff and cool stuff oh, and different than a lot of people that I have known. Um, you say you're a research biologist. Um, I think a lot of people would go, well, what's that? Yeah. Do you work in a lab and you're trying to, you know, find the cure for cancer Right. Like, do you wear a lab coat or do you wear boots? 
Nice. Yes. I'm in a, I'm in a, okay. As far as the research biologist goes, I am an actioner, the type that wears, uh, you know, polypro and waiters. You're an actioner. Action nerd. Oh, action nerd. Yes. Okay. I thought I was on, I thought I was into some in the community, like speak, yeah, some like no. jargon. I, 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 is there jargon to describe what you do? Yeah. Action nerd. Oh, they say action nerd in your science community? I think I coined that a long time ago. So, uh, our, but our, that's like MacGyver, crew. right? Um, yeah, yeah, I guess he is an action nerd too. He's part of our club. He's part of our club. He definitely okay. falls in with the type of work that we do. So to back it up, what I was doing at the time is uh, funny how, again, time is relative and things sometimes will very much come full circle. I ended up doing a career that was what I really wanted to do when I was a, pretty much a teenager. Ended up being out in the woods in the natural sciences using my brain nerd but then evoking action and movement action nerd so we are out fighting the good fight trying to save the planet um i'm a restoration ecologist that's riparian corridors that's the river the forest around the rivers so i had gone through school university of washington at the time was a school of aquatic and fishery sciences it's now college on the environment we own the south campus we fight against the uh, UW Medical Center and all their lab coats. We all fight for Agua Verde control. I don't know if you know about this. No, and it's, I it's think true. a lot of people don't. It's so. like it's like the Jets versus the Sharks. Sometimes. So it's more of a fight for um, control of Agua Verde. When Aqua, first, Aqua Verde? Agua Verde, which Agua. is down there on Boat Street where all the kayak rentals are. Oh, okay. And the fantastic food they have there. Like So it's a great place. It's right between, you know... SAFs kind of area and where the UW Medical Center is. So it's where the standoff began. Is this a restaurant? Yeah. It's a tiny little restaurant down there on Boat Street. So I'm just, I'm just, I'm just messing with you, Dave. So we, <laughs> no, no, we no. All, I, I want to walk with you here. We're and all am, huskies. We all go to the same college. But you're like, long. right. But yeah. you're going to, you're going to go out with these other people into the real world and do some hands-on getting dirty work. And these people are going to put on lab coats and exactly. accidentally create a super violence or zombies or something. Right. Super, super virus. Oh yeah. Or zombies or something. By the way, they're putting that bioengineering building down there. Have you seen the security level? No. Because they have people, you know, they have, uh, you know, the eco. I know they're doing something with animals and people are pissed. Exactly. So you have some of these eco. <laughs> Here's your perspective. And eco terrorists are not where they're tying themselves and chaining themselves up to the bull, uh, to the bulldozers. But so that's that's kind of where the standoff line is. That's right by Agua Verde. Okay. So bringing it back to Agua Verde. We, we all get along. We're all Huskies. Go Huskies. Um, so I'm at But what Sass. I'm wondering, though, is like when it comes to like the animal testing part of the school, would you – which side of those lines would you be on? Because, I mean, you've definitely got friends that are going to be out there with the chaining themselves and the – I mean, there are people that, you know, that do that. I don't know where you fall with that whole thing. Absolutely. Um, I have friends who are research scientists and have reasonings and, and purpose for doing this. I have friends who are PETA, poster, carrying, you know, chaining themselves to not bulldozers because they don't use that I don't so think much in animal testing, there. but they're the ones going into labs and setting animals free. Sure. I'm a biologist. Um, there is, the, the, there is a, a middle ground. You know that I am... An animal lover on all levels. And the, yeah, this is a tough one. But for instance, there are projects that I have had to work on before where we've had to, you know, in, in the process, an animal is euthanized or lost. And this becomes that, not even a debate, but the, because the, I, I don't think it's a debate because I all, all animals have feeling. 
are sentient beings and feel pain? And can you do it um, responsibly with care? So as we are sampling a specific species of trout and we have to cut the caudal fin off to collect the blood, and the blood has to be collected at a certain rate, otherwise you can't get the reading, et cetera, et cetera. I'm like calling the intern over, you know, <laughs> you got to cut the tail off. Once it's dead, okay, well, I'll draw the blood. Now, are you talking about doing this in the field or doing mm-hmm. this? At the- in, in the field, in the field. So I'm just saying I can relate to having to conduct that type of an activity and understanding the purpose of it in science. Mm-hmm. But I am at the same time very anti-animal testing in any in any manner. Like a laboratory. Okay. Like, I don't, I don't have a full understanding of what is happening there. All I know is that I've got a lot of people, because of the music scene that we've been involved in, there's a lot of these issues that are always at the forefront. There's a lot of people that are very upset and putting themselves into that situation. Mm-hmm. Um, s- enough so that I should familiarize myself more with what's going on there. I think whenever someone raises a ruckus, people should familiarize themselves with what's going on. This comes down to it's where do you draw the line? And that's a very personal choice, in my opinion. You know, people can be very upset whether it's rabbits that are in that cage or a primate of some variety. But then where do you, where do you decide that you're not hurting an animal? What if we're doing studies and it's fish? What if we're doing it on snails? What are, where do you draw that line? And I think that's a very personal choice. And I don't judge anybody who fundamentally opposes it outright. Yeah, I, I eat meat and I have a daily battle with that. I I do my best to make sure that the animal receives the right kind of treatment, that it's sustainable. I mean, obviously for my body, I don't want any hormones or anything, but also that that animal, the quality of life that animal has is uh, something that I can live with. Right. Okay. Sorry to drag you into potentially dangerous territory. Not a problem at all. I mean, I come from dairy farmers, so, you know. That's I, that's where you come from? My My, my people. Well, my, my father was adopted, so so I know my adoptive grandfather's background. They were ranchers. My mom's side of the family were, you know, like farmers, dairy farmers, right on the North Dakota, South Dakota border, right there where the wind blows really hard. It's really cold winters. It's really hot summers. And we're talking real, real working farms. And the type of people who, on I-229... You know that there's a storm coming in. They're the ones like, let's go get the snowmobiles. we got to rescue people. Oh, nice. I mean, that's my people. That's why that's I, to your... this day, if there's a car broken down at an intersection, I'll pull over and get out and start moving. That's what's sound like. That's how I was raised. Nice. This is what you got to do. You're an action nerd. Um, and um, and now I took that action and just added the nerd aspect, and I'm an action nerd. All right. Well, I'm going to take you back to those early days in just a little bit. But I kind of want to like get. I'm I'm doing this a little different. I'm gonna go more backwards with you. A lot of times I take try to take people all the way back to their earliest memories and stuff, and then come forward. But I I want to get a sense of what you were doing and who you were and how you came into this Bigfoot show. Okay. Um. So you're involved at the University of Washington. You're a field well research biologist. Is that the right way to say it? Field yeah, research biologist? I'm, yeah, I'm a, I'm a field biologist, research biologist. Okay. It explains, see, how we, when you hear a research biologist, there's either lab nerds or action nerds. Action nerds are go out in the field a lot more. They're the R- people who are like on the boats, you know, in the in the trees. Or okay. Around. So who <laughs> hires you to do this job? Um, so to back it up, I knew what I wanted to do. You could either work for, to, to do this for my specific interests. Um, I was working at the University of Washington, the Fisheries Research Institute, and ultimately was working with NOAA, which is National Oceanographic Atmospheric Administration, which does not mean you're out on the ocean. 
And everybody defaults, thinks, I, I think especially in, inland, not on the coast, you think NOAA, you think either the weather service. NOAA, you're on the ark. Or you're on the ark, exactly. Two by two, bring the animals in. <laughs> Instead, um, I work for NOAA, and I, I specifically at that time worked for the uh, Ecological Conservation Division uh, Watershed Program Restoration Team. So, so just think of uh, anything from the headwaters, that alpine environment, all the way down to the estuary and the forest right around it. Okay. That, that That's my specialty. That's what I'm focused on. Because a lot of times people throw me out and they think, oh, salmon, so you're a fish biologist. And I'm like, no, really what took me into this exact field when I was still in college and ultimately networked me to working for that restoration team was brown bears. Was brown, okay. Bears. So you're, you basically are, your job would be to collect data on how water is essentially running from the the high mountains out to the out to the ocean. So when you are at UW and you have your your different degrees, somebody um they're they're going to have your focuses, and then obviously it gets more and more and more specific. Yeah. So uh, at UW at that time it was aquaculture, marine mammalogy, whale huggers, <laughs> and and uh, aquatic ecology. So on within aquatic ecology you have limnology, study of freshwater systems, or marine biology kind of mm. more, which is obviously salt. Um, and then see, salt on the ocean is goes in a whole nother place. That goes over to oceanography where you're out of biology and it's a whole different group. But so I'm an aquatic ecologist. From there, you take it down more specifically. Um, I'm in the riparian corridor specialty. That's my niche more specifically. I mean, that's huge. That goes from macroinvertebrates, the flies that the, the fish are hidden, that salmon are trying to eat all the way up to a brown bear. Okay. Within so, that system. So there's the geomorphology. So that's how the brown bear connects to the streams, connects to the yeah. to the fish. To the, okay. Yeah. So basically riparian corridors, there's also flora versus fauna. So you have the geomorphology, that topography, how it moves. Um, you have the water element, obviously, like I said, with limnology. There's there's the chemistry of it. There's is it frustrating to you to try to explain what you do to someone who is absolutely obviously an idiot when it comes to these? No, but I just don't, actually when I if anything I'm like okay try to be more succinct try to be more succinct. <laughs> well, I guess so. What I'm basically the role I'm playing here is all the people who might listen to this who really don't know about this stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, so you know when you said what's really about brown bears, you know. That's I'd like to make that connection. So. Yeah, for me, it's really about brown bears because that's what was my motivation of always getting me, leading you down. It, it ultimately, you know what, kids, fans of the show who are always asking me, you know, how do I, how do I really get into this type of field? Something I like. I'm like, find what you love. Find the person who's doing what you love that you think would be great to do, and make them your mentor. And your path may or may not change, but you get on that path and follow it sincerely organically if you stay true to your heart and follow that path it honestly sounds so silly but that's where you're supposed to be because you're being true to yourself so i became that out of a love and a fascination of brown bears so um yeah my my senior thesis was uh interannual variation the number of fish that return to the system each year in this instance sockeye salmon and creek complexity affecting the consumption patterns of brown bears upon sockeye. Okay. So depending on how difficult and how steep or wide or how much debris is in a creek and the number of fish comes back affects what specific part of the sockeye's body the bear will consume. And oh. You, you can make all... It's, the bear won't just eat the entire fish? See, it depends. 
and you can graph it and explain it mathematically and you can prove it. You can put your hypotheses out and one after another prove and disprove them. And then as people are gathering this data, as the years go by, the model that you've you've put out there should then be proven? Or... Yeah, this was some of the work started by Scott Gandy, I believe. And then as I headed up to Alaska and continued on with part of it, um, move forward, um, I met a, a fantastic researcher by the name of Stephanie Carlson. She was doing her master's. Her master's are, definitely was finishing up her PhD, and she's now, um, you know, a professor down down at Stanford, continuing the work. And I mean, in hers, you know, like I said, the speciality is is really how how brown bears impact the system. You know, I, I've seen some of the stuff we pass back and forth. Some of those videos, the ones that a lot of people I think can relate to, is how wolves can change the shape of a river. No, uh, that was really popular back on, you know, social media a few years ago. How wolves can change the shape of a river. Yeah, and, and for that matter, arguably any animal can change. You know, you're going to go about the butterfly effect here a yeah, little yeah. bit. But basically in this instance, um, beavers are ecosystem engineers. How they impact and can quickly change the landscape. They do it very quickly and they have a higher rate of impact than other species do. But here's a more longer term example is you remove wolves. Wolves put pressure on ungulates, the deer, the elk, etc. So when wolves are re- removed from the system, their grazing behavior completely changes. So they, they have less pressure, so they graze harder, meaning uh, more, more intensively, and the location changes. So based on grazing and what type of shrubs are eaten, etc., will change the shape of how and where the river is going to move. Is it because if the if the shrubs are eaten down, then the root systems die, and then the the, and it the ground will will erode away from the exactly. water? Exactly, you'll get incisions in certain areas, etc. I mean, of course, there's all this I mean, other factors. I love that what I this, that year. my plotting little is it because I mean yeah. I, I really feel like a, a young child like well, the, getting you to getting the teacher to explain it to me. The beauty is the look on your face at doing that thing, and additionally, <laughs> then, <laughs> no one could see this podcast, yeah. <laughs> so just imagine what she meant. It's and adorable. we'll just go with it. It's oh, a, it was whatever. adorable. Additionally, so the river's changing shape. That that bottom section might get thicker or less, but wolves come back in, put that pressure, that evolutionary one that had they evolved together at this system, putting it back in place. In my opinion, letting it be the way that it is, and then additionally, you get songbirds returning because the songbirds now have more cover. They're able to return the system. More cover from back. the, because the wolves are eating more of the deer and the elk. The, the Being in the willows. You know, if you go down, walking a river is one of my favorite things to do. It uh, evokes a lot of memories from my childhood. Fantastic poems. But it, it is, it brings me um, peace. I feel grounded very much. It's one thing that I, I, two things that I love. One is getting high up in an alpine environment and having a vista after a, a a strenuous workout or something you get that it it speaks to my soul it it soothes my soul but that's something very difficult to do you can't be out up on an alpine environment easily all the time so a daily one that really is something that has always meant something i grew up on the big sioux river back in south dakota my grandmother's house is on the missouri river so rivers are very very close and important to me so um completely lost my train of thought about the the river thing coming back well, uh, we were talking about songbirds come back. Because oh, just, of- yeah, I was saying that um, I can't stress enough, I think, the importance. I know it is for me to go and walk a river, but the state of mind it can put you in, the observations and and how it can change, I, don't know, I will argue to say, your chemistry. You know, you're, how you're flowing, you're gonna, the, these hormones are going to 
calm down. You're going to get into a different state of mind and it's going to completely affect you. So, well, could it just be argued that even just hearing the water? Yeah. Well, there's that calms people. There's a great book out there um, talking about water chemistry, whether like water is alive and how it moves together. I mean, it's a little bit some people say on the woo woo end, but on um, the woo woo end. Yeah, on the woo woo end. Because is water alive? I think we have science to figure that out, right? Yeah, well, um, then that's. I, I think that right now I would say is beyond science. But uh, but I think rivers are, um, just my point there is rivers are something so important to me on multiple levels and I think should be important to future generations. And people who can appreciate rivers or appreciate nature are A-plus people in my books, people who I navigate to and are drawn to and have a commonality with and, and a lot of respect for. I have a friend who is very concerned that the reason why there's trouble with fish species is because they're being overfished by treaty rights of Native Americans. And I have no idea what to say to him when he talks about this because I don't go where he goes to Mm -hmm. go fishing. Um, He says the way these things are set up is there's just no way for the fish to make it. You That'd be something you would know. Well, we're talking about treaties rights. And let's, let's say this, that First Nations people, the problem is, is we have impacted these fish on multiple levels. They talk about harvest, hydro, habitat, humans. There's the, they talk about all the ages of it, but I'll, to, to stay on point, anthropogenic factors, we have human factors that were the impacts. We have altered the physics. We have altered the physical shape of the river, the geomorphology. Um, we dredged it. We cut it. We <laughs> made it into a canal here where it's concrete, which changes the water temperature the type of um, sediment that is going through, we, we've blocked it at certain points, is, is a huge impact. But when you have First Nations people in there and they've been in that area and, and our government came in and put them there, you know, I, I, I'm for it. I'm, I'm for their, their rights. I'm for our indigenous culture to embrace and hold on to that. And I would stand there with a picket and arm in arm with them and, and defend it. What I don't defend is poaching and what I have observed mm. and what I, and to me, it's the one that makes me the most upset, you know, cause I, I, I will be out sampling in rivers months on end at certain times of the year and I'm seeing different cars or I'm coming down weird back trails that people don't even know are there. I see a lot and I'll see poachers, you know, and I'm mad at them or one thing, but when I see somebody who's poaching, who is a, who's a native American, I get extra mad because I'm like, this isn't even necessary. You have all these additional <laughs> rights and you're coming out and poaching. I'm like, brother, come on. That, um, so that one extra ticks me off with right, as so- far as poachers go. I think, to answer your question, I believe the First Nations people, their treaty rights, people will argue and say, why are the macaw going out in a canoe and then they're using a high power weapon? Oh, for we're into whaling now. Well, I'm just saying, but- we're talking First Nations sure, rights. Sure, sure. Um, they're going out and... <laughs> Their argument is that our people have done this historically over time. As long as we've managed to a certain amount, the populations of the whales aren't going to go extinct because their own council members, of course, they argue all within themselves. They're mm-hmm. arguing on how many we can or can't, but I believe they have that right. So some people will say, well, fine, let them go out there, but take a harpoon, do it the way you always do it. The, Taking the, the gun. Way. Yeah. Well, then do it the traditional way. <laughs> right. At least they're trying to put a quick end to the whale suffering i see it as that way i see the you're saying the gun is actually faster in terms of is is a more humane death i'm not for i do not promote the killing of whales in any capacity right 
and I'm not saying it because it's such a sentient creature and, and, and argue that it is more intelligent than, say, the, the fish that the caudal fin was cut off and we had to collect its blood. I'm not saying it for that reason. I'm just saying because I don't, I just, I don't, I don't support it at all. But they do have First Nations rights. And, you know, I, I, I'm, this is me. Here I am. This, this is, I am always very much a skeptic and always defend the opposing side. I believe, you know, the one thing that Finding Bigfoot does do that I really do enjoy is gives an opportunity for people to come very often approach me who don't agree with me. And, and we can have a discussion more often than not 90 plus percent of the time, these people know I'm probably going to disagree with them, mm-hmm. but the kids are watching the show. And what I want the kids to understand is that we have a very polarized society right now. Um, as the pendulum swings back and forth, we are in extremes right now. And I want that generation to know that you can disagree with somebody, but you can also learn from them and you can respectfully disagree with them. Oh, you know? yeah. Just there's no right or wrong. There's so much of this right wrong going on that that if we would stop and just listen and look for compromises in the middle and, and try to understand. I, if you talk to. Renee, well, that, if you had known me for more than 15 years, Dave, and you'd look back, you might not, you might not want to know me now. Who knows? I mean, <laughs> had you met me then? I mean, we all, we all evolve. We all change. We all. The, these things that you're saying about reasonable discussions are great for reasonable people. Mm-hmm. Like, but if you're with some of the things that have come up recently, the Planned Parenthood stuff and the Confederate flag stuff and just the really crazy political stuff that's been out there where people just outright lie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can say this, that even though I'm in a position where. I'm the skeptical scientist. I can easily, and for the most part, explain away a lot of things. I will say, uh, you know, there's some that you can't explain. You can't categorize it to these other things. I think growing up in an alternative lifestyle um, very much kind of pr- prepared me for that type of encounter where I am used to meeting people where I'm the outsider. Um, you know, I'm in the minority in science because I'm a woman. I'm a minority in the general population because I'm left-handed. Um, things are not made my way. I've just, I'm very, I'm always, whatever it is, it's different. I usually do it that way. I'm, you know, so I'm a gay woman. Um, I'm used to encountering people who fundamentally believe I'm going to hell. But you exact change by, by how you compose. I don't, I, how is it going to do any good for them to meet some reactive person who just wants to argue and say, I'm right, you're wrong, rip you down to make myself higher, gets you nowhere. Instead, I let them meet me. They find out about my life. They talk. I explain my reasoning. I explain my perspective. There's no right or wrong. I feel this way, and this is why I do. Right. Well, I think you, you're the kind of person who puts people at ease, too. So someone who might, you know, I think p- people with some of those ideas, that they might think you're going to hell, but they still want to have a nice conversation with you because that's not what you're talking about. But when, right. So I uh, let's make it on, because this, this, what I'm saying, right. What I'm saying is that this can translate to every, to different topics, whether it is, Planned Parenthood, whether it is, you know, abortion, it's moral issues, whether you're gay, whether we should have the Confederate flag, you can sit down and have a dialogue. And that's a difference. It's not a shouting match. It's not a right or wrong. Why do I feel that way? This or that. And also it becomes those instances. And lots of times this is in politics. Well, say you'll say something, you'll have an opinion. I'm like, where, you know, where did you hear that? Why do you feel that way? Where did you learn that? Because that's where you start to learn from each other. Mm -hmm. And it's those moments where people start getting additional insight that then makes them reflect. And at times, that's how we make change. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's three sources, right? There's Fox News, Breitbart.com, and The Blaze. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's uh, that's the three. I mean, because they say you should have three sources. 
So I think that's those are the places where you can get your. Uh, they if, as long as one backs up the other one, I oh, think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is something. I'll tell you what. I come from a very. I have uh, tea party members everyone, in my family. Every, I call, everyone's going to get that's a joke. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I well, I hope so. I our faces going back and forth. <laughs> you should have seen the faces, folks. They were they were just eye rolling and head shaking. <laughs> Exasperation, true faces of exasperation. All right, you're saying you had tea party you know, members I, in your family. I, I come from a very, very, I grew up in South Dakota. I come from a very conservative Christian family. I have tea party members, tea baggers, I call them. Uh, I have sure. evangelical Christians in my family. I come from, very, I am, again, the outsider for the most part, but we have conversations um, that don't have to get explosive. And very often, one thing that I've tried to do and educate, it's like, it's not make it Fox against CNN, I'll say, what are your sources and are you fact checking your sources and and all that but um yeah i i don't believe in attacking people and i think that's one thing i try to tell the kids the person who's yelling the loudest or making their point so strong and imposing their will on yours is the person you should believe the least that's pretty good it's if why do they want you to believe so bad the ones who believe for their own reasons and who want to share it with you well probably been the ones who have like looked at it overall and you can add to that the ones that say this is how it is trust me versus the ones who say this is how it is find out mm-hmm. i mean that that's that should be the answer yeah <laughs> unless yeah. you're carly fiorina and you tell people to go watch a video that doesn't exist <laughs> <laughs> that's a that may not be timely throughout the life of this podcast but yeah. you know it's a it's it's republican debate time uh, in a, in america right now and it's been really entertaining you know a really good read speaking of just politics right now is was is What's the Matter with Kansas by Thomas Frank. I think it came out in about 2004. Called What's the Matter with Kansas? What's the Matter with Kansas? And it really explains how, I mean, I think how uh, Republicans, you know, turned middle America conservative, how they embraced it. I mean, it used to be that those farming rural states and the Rust Belt states, you know, uh, it was always Minnesota, Wisconsin, the Rust Belt states, that middle America, rural areas and farmers and the unions were blue states. And isn't Kansas where the the doctor shootings happened? I don't recall. That's not in the book. I, okay. I, the the I, the abortion doctor shooting. Yeah, I'm trying to I'm trying to think back and I thought because I know it's foggy brained. It's something that Rachel Maddow has discussed a lot in her show. Oh, along with out of the, re- referencing the book. I don't know if she's referenced the book, but I've heard oh. I she's definitely talked about Kansas as being a place where you can ask that question. Oh, so okay. could very yeah. well be. Oh, I, I, I'm I'm seeing your connection. Um, I'm just saying the book title is What's the Matter mm-hmm. with Kansas. So basically, the premise is the moral majority was brilliant. The, I should say the Republican Party was brilliant. They brought in the idea of the moral majority. So instead of having a separation of church and state, which our country was founded on and founded on the hypocrisy here, it's founded on religious freedom. Mm-hmm. What happens is they go and they get these uh, passionate pastors, preachers, etc. And they start um, basically preaching from the pulpit political issues. So instead of it being that the Republican Party represented fiscal responsibility regarding taxation and all these civil issues, they made it about moral issues. Mm -hmm. And if you've noticed since the early 80s forward, some of the greatest people that I know, which is like all the middle America where where I come from, they answer on a knee-jerk response to a moral issue regarding politics instead of so much those civic ones. And that's what that's really kind of what the overall the book really touches on, which is like oh, brilliant. And 
No, and it fundamentally needs it's like people. It's about separation. These are separation of church and state. Isn't this? Isn't that just a longer way of saying uh, they cling to their guns and they cling to their Bibles, which is what Obama got in all the trouble for saying? <laughs> um, I know a lot of Democrats who cling to their guns too that that really like to get out. But I thank think you for saying that. I, I do, and um, I promote. I mean, I think the NRA more and more. There's horrible. a lot of people on the left that are looking at their Bibles and saying, hey, wait a minute. What you said is in here isn't. Right. And there's a lot of other stuff you're not paying attention to. Yeah, And I know very good Christian. Baptists, and by the way, like, left Democrats. or right, left or right, that doesn't belong in the law. Right. It's great for how to conduct yourself personally with other people. Mm-hmm. But the that's not a book where the law comes from. Yeah. So I really what it comes down to is that getting on those moral issues, but also just what you said about the three Fox Blaze and the other one <laughs> is that you've get the, you get you get this population because I take offense to people like middle American people are stupid they're, and they're just simple and they're dumb. They're not because um, I know just as many people here in Metro Seattle who, well, where did you hear that? What's your source? And they look blankly and they heard it and repeat it. People in general are just lazier and are not taking the time to think for themselves and independently. But I will tell you two things. Our media is is a part of result of that. Back in the 60s, you know, they had responsible journalism. We've lost that as all of our media networks are controlled by a few sources where um so that's a problem. So the news that is getting to people is 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 so saturated and well, and know. people think that they're watching the news when they watch Sean Hannity and when they watch Rachel Maddow mm-hmm. and when they watch Lawrence and, and, and O'Donnell and these other people on MSNBC and the, the talking heads that are like, you know, Bill O'Reilly. That's not the news. That's the commentary. Exactly. But the also, news happens during the day when it's not a show with a name. But that news isn't even news anymore, Dave. No. That news is also saturated and slanted and sold out and R- owned right. by but, only a couple of But arguably, of though, that at least is the what the news would be. Whereas people, I think, are watching when they get home after work. They're not watching the local headlines, right. which, you know, which people do because they stay up and they'll watch like the late show and they'll see the news right before it. Mm-hmm. But if you watch MSNBC or Fox after 5 p.m., forget it. Like, oh. that's not real news. They're, they're going to talk about news issues with their own opinion. And that's a different kind of vibe. That's well, the. Well, then you're talking about shock talk and all that and how that gets so out of control and what viewers want to watch. And first of all, we, we have nobody to blame for ourselves by our, our viewing choices that we make and which I could run on. But but what I want to say is, can you imagine being a journalist in this day and age and trying to write articles, Okay, whether it's print in newspaper, magazine or some venue, or if it's on the television, they have an uphill battle in this day and age. Because the parent company is cutting them off at the legs. That right there, in addition to the larger Fox News and MSNBC and all these people who are screaming back and forth. Now, I'm going to do this. I'm just going to see if it's going to work. But this whole time I've been wanting to jump back to get the answer to the question that actually started us on this path. Hot tub time machine. I'm ready. (laughs) No, it was actually about the fishing in the streams and the nets across the streams. My friend was concerned that there was an impact in fish numbers that the real problem with declining fish was that the tribal rights was allowing them to take all the fish out of all the rivers, essentially. And so my question for you is, without an opinion uh, about whether it's right to do it or wrong, does that affect the numbers? Yeah, it does. Okay. I mean, it, it, you, and that's a, you would need more details to answer that specifically that's, because you have, first of all, we have m- multiple species, so that that is uh, location dependent. Mm-hmm. 
Um, it's a timing dependent because you can at one location, you're going to have different species. Let's just narrow it down to salmon. Yeah. Okay. You're going to have different species of salmon returning at a specific location timing wise. Um, and then at another location, it might be all different species of salmon running at different times. So, um, outright, that's so hard that <sighs> you could argue and say sport fishing does the same thing. Recreational sport fishing does the same thing. You're gonna, okay. And if that person wants to cut first nation treaty rights off, then, Stop commercial fishing then. Okay. There is far more salmon and critical and threatened species that are impacted by commercial fishing than anywhere near. Okay. So you're saying that the the situation. I would still defend people. Right. I will still defend First Nation treaties. And so the idea that every place where the water comes back out to the ocean, there's a net across it is not true. Every single place. No, that's, that's, I've, I've that's been kind off. of the idea. Well, okay. Well, so when when one argues one point of view, the way we do it now in the world mm-hmm. is it's either they shouldn't be able to do it at all, so there should be no nets, or because there's nets, there's nets everywhere. Well, here becomes that. <laughs> here here becomes that exact. I wish you know said person was here, and I could say, why do you feel that way? Because I have been to places where there are First Nations land, and the river comes out, and there's not. So to say this all-encompassing word of everywhere right this person i feel is shooting themselves in the foot and kind no, of and, undermining and, themselves and there's also that's... a possibility it's the way i'm hearing it but it's i this isn't something that i when i hear an uh, an issue when i hear someone passionately discuss an issue that i haven't heard before i'll pay attention and i have a friend who has brought this up a couple of different times because they like to fish in the river um and so it's interesting to me and having you here with that background i yeah. thought i'd get so okay So, you know, I also wanted to kind of bookend the things we were talking about since I felt like it went in very interesting ways away from the conversation into politics, which I try to keep it kind of light (laughs) here, but I I do allow some (laughs) and then um, and then get try to get back to the original idea. And then because we're going to go back further with you and we're going to find out about you before you're doing this In, in the hot tub. I will say to your friend, ask him the salmon life cycle, because that will answer a big part of his question. If he's so worried about one phase of that salmon's life, yes. Wait, what's the rest of it? Well, well what's the what's the question? He's arguing. He's like, you know, it's impacting it so much because they're they're netting everything, which is not a true statement because it's impossible to net everything. Okay. And secondly, he's completely eliminating the whole commercial impact on these adult salmon returning. So I would love to hear more. Okay. About his, uh, okay. His, uh, yeah. We haven't said any names. Yeah. This is an awesome person who I like a lot. So oh, yeah, it yeah, just, you know, everybody yeah. has a thing. And no, I don't know saying, that I, and that's a thing. Yeah. I didn't even know if I could disagree with him because I haven't been there and seen what he's talking about. And I have never talked to a pro- professional, but well, now I have, <laughs> to a, I guess not a professional, an expert. Yeah. I'm unfortunately with uh, chasing mythical beings. I am getting further and further away from, it's been five years. I wait, mean, I, I, I continue. Wait, 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 from, do you chase myth, mythical beings? Yeah. I look for things that I really don't believe is a biological undiscovered species. But oh, what I do that's believe what you mean is by mythical. Yeah. You're talking about Bigfoot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Just in case anyone didn't know, I believe in Bigfoot. Yeah. Renee is the skeptic on the Finding Bigfoot show. But I believe in Bigfoot, but I don't believe it is a biological undiscovered species. Wait a minute. What? Yes. Okay, we're going to, you know what? We're Once again, we're going to change the format just a little bit. We're going to find out a little bit more about you later, about what you were like when you were younger. But I want you to explain that statement. You just said, I believe in Bigfoot, but I don't believe in an undiscovered biological entity. Mm-hmm. Could you explain that for 
dumb people like me? Yeah. So um, one thing I find really interesting is that what is a definition of science? That is that is a broad term for some people. You're gonna you're gonna Clinton this. You're gonna say what the definition of it is is. No, 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 no. Hear me out. Stay with me, Dave. Stay with me. He's got a really cute look in his face right now. So what people define as science, what people define as faith are different things. I'm a scientist. So I take a critical objective view of, of the natural world and try to understand it. And that involves a scientific method, hypotheses, until you finally have a law, which, oh, you know, sometimes you find out you're wrong. And that's not about right and wrong. It's about learning and trying to fill in the holes to a bigger picture. Okay. So as a scientist, I do not believe there is an undiscovered bipedal primate with a large enough population to continue to exist, right? Having a carry capacity, a K number, et cetera, et cetera. A sentient being. The K number? A is K, it- uh, K would be like a carrying capacity. Like in order to, for a species, for instance, um, some of the endangered rhinos we have in the world here mm-hmm. have fallen below their K. They, there's just not enough animals that exist anymore to survive. Right. Like no arc is going to come in and pull two and two and they're going to go. Okay. So I don't believe that there is that physical animal that has remained undetected for the, during the existence of man. Right. Okay. It's a sentient being. Oh, it buries its dead. All these reasonings why we don't find a body. But with that said, avoiding cataclysmic events, I just don't, I just don't see the evidence that supports it. However, without getting caught up in, in in religion let's just say i'm a very spiritual person i do believe in a higher power um you know somebody said do you believe in ghosts well i don't not believe in ghosts i can't prove or disprove ghosts but i can't science can't explain ghosts so why not you know do i believe our our spirit or soul whatever we call it goes somewhere else yes i believe that so with that said people who are claiming to see bigfoot or have an encounter i believe them they believe that they saw Bigfoot. I believe they believe they saw Bigfoot. But when you start investigating and talking to a witness and trying to recreate it, over half of them are misidentification. I, be- I believe, and I just as a sure. scientist, I'm throwing out these rough numbers. I'll say 67% of them yeah, yeah, I are wouldn't be surprised if it was more than half. Then you get a, a fair percentage of people who are, it's a situation where it's pareidolia, where... We that has come up on this podcast before. Yeah, okay. It's uh, it's it, it, This is a psychological phenomenon. You're laying there, you're looking at the clouds, and you see Mickey Mouse's face. Mm-hmm. And we are hardwired to when we start to see shapes. Now, obviously, people are not looking at it. They believe that they saw, you know, some leaves together, and they believe it's Bigfoot. The way your mind works is you start seeing shadows and what are organically occurring things that are there, mm-hmm. leaves, sticks, whatever, the light hitting it the right way. You are hardwired as your brain to fill in the pieces. Mm. This is no. This is known. So pareidolia, which we can also t- throw in that whole psychological of how your memory alters over time. Right. And you'd pass a, you'd pass a lie detector test. Totally different podcast on this series t- touched on that, that you remember a memory. You don't remember the original event. Yep. So the psychological phenomena and pareidolia, that explains a lot of them. Okay. Then you have what I kind of call medical condition. If somebody- <laughs> Are you trying to say crazy person? That's a that's a shrug of shoulders with palms out and hands up. So you're not going to be able to see that, but I think that's a way of sort of what I would not wanting is, to use those terms because she's call, classier than that. I will never call somebody crazy because um, I'm not a psychiatrist. I won't diagnose, but I will say this. 
Um, and when I, I lump it into medical, because say somebody's on a medication where you can kind of see things, I have a sleep disorder. I could very well be sleeping in an event and tell you that something had happened to me and I have a sleep disorder, medical condition. So whether your vision is impaired, whether you're on a medication, whether you have a sleep disorder, whether you are, and you're using your words crazy, for whatever reason, it's something that, you know, you lump that into medical. Is it the same sleep disorder that the movie Sleepwalk With Me touches on? Me, Mike Birbiglia. Birbiglia's yeah. movie? He stole my, he stole my stand-up gig. I'm just kidding. That yeah, been... it, it's very similar. Very, very similar. So you're you're kind of in that same because in that it talks about how he's in a very, very thin slight percentage slice of the people where it becomes dangerous to you or to others. Yeah, I mean, if you want to talk about this, I can run you and I can tell you some crazy stories about Renee. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, some are scary, some are funny, some are. If you're willing funny. to have the, those things be known, I don't. Yeah. I mean, we could cut this out, or we can. No, I, I would. I would totally glad to share. Do you want me to go there? You want me to finish this little oh, pie fin- of Bigfoot? Oh, finish where you're going and pie well, of Bigfoot. Okay, so let's let's yes, yeah, so let's go back yeah. to the pie of Bigfoot. So but I thought that was interesting. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So sixty some, you know, let's throw sixty some percent is misidentification. Then you have that pareidolia mm-hmm. psychological one. Then you have the medical one. Then you have the people who have been hoaxed. Now, this is something the guys always say on the show. You know, hoaxes always come out. Come on. You know what? I'm sorry. Now where I come from, the best part of a hoax is the, the longer you can keep it going. The longer you can keep a, a hoax going, the longer that Bob down the street still thinks that a jackalope is real is is uh, hilarious. Okay. So that's a category. People who were hoaxed and didn't know it. Okay. They saw okay. Bigfoot. One other small category is people lie. Sure. Okay. That's a small category there. But when you add that all up together, I will say this, looking you dead in the eye, having heard thousands and thousands and thousands of Bigfoot reports from people firsthand, some people trembling, some people, I mean, visibly shaken, and either they're award-winning actors or they're telling you a true story, which I believe the majority of the time these people are telling me the truth and believe it. Um, I don't think many of them are lying. (laughs) With that said, there still is this small percentage, and I like to very... um, tongue-in-cheek say 0.087 percent you know um it's very small though where you cannot categorize it you can't put it into one of these other categories and you and i have discussed a couple of these things before. yeah and i've shared stories with you where i'm like what else would that have been but with that said i believe those people saw something that we cannot explain with science but yet it goes against all these rules of science so what are they seeing? No, Renee, we can't explain. We seeing? can't explain with current science. Well, exactly. Because there's plenty of things I couldn't explain with science 200 years ago. But well, we can go on a slant and a little argument there about technology. You know, with that said, what are they seeing? And this is how I reconcile it. And this is from my personal experiences of my entire life, not just about from hearing Bigfoot stories, just who I am, who mm-hmm. Renee is, what makes me up and makes up my belief system and my perspective as somebody who is a scientist. A biologist and ecologist that works has spent over 15 years so many hours in the Bigfoot hotspot and nothing ever happens. Okay, well, what's going on? What are these people seeing? I cannot tell you how many times I've worked with indigenous peoples, Native Americans here, who have a very strong belief system associated with Sasquatch, Bookwos, Windigo, all the different names they have for it. The majority of them, and the guys I've quoted on the show, they'll say, you ask any Native American, 90 plus percent of them to tell you, it's real. Mm-hmm. And then period. They'll stop right there. And they're, and I think they're very Fox Newsing it, if you will, because <laughs> what they actually said, and I can't, I haven't done enough research to give you an exact number, but I can tell you more than 70% of Native American people, probably closer to like 75, would say 
it is real. It is a spiritual type being. And I think the best description I can have was a Haida elder. A Haida elder is up there in south, um, southeast Alaska. Specifically, this one was over on Prince of Wales Island. It was a Haida elder that explained it best. He said, there's a totem, there's bear, there's wolf, there's raven. These animals are real. You and me, our physical body and our spiritual being are locked in this plane. So when we die, our spirit then leaves our body. But it's locked. Bookless, Wendigo, Sasquatch, etc., all the names I have for it, can come and go at will. And he places his hand on my shoulder with a smile and says, you'll never touch one. Mm. So their belief system is it is a, it's a special being that protects the forests and can choose to leave its footprints, to appear before you, to throw a rock, whatever. Some will believe it's uh, a separate tribe of men, like uh, other sure native natives I, I know i know people who believe that some believe it's uh it, it, and there are some tribes who believe it's real animal. i believe it's apache believe that they are that it can be killed and have made i don't want to say claims to make me as if i don't believe them but i've said that they can kill them and they've warred with them previously so but the majority 75 some percent they have that very spiritual type belief uh, so, the screenwriter in me in, I'm, the, inside me the screenwriter part of me just really jumped up at bigfoot war oh yeah i'm that's, yeah, okay, so that's another one in my, that I've got to deal with now. The screenwriter in me is like, Walking Dead meets Bigfoot? Well, I mean, you're screwed. We're, you're screwed. A, a, well, zomb- the, a zombie Bigfoot? Come on, how are you going to stop that? No, I thought Big, okay. Well, see, you definitely just threw zombies into it, but that's, I guess, what yeah, people do yeah. now. But I was thinking with people, I don't think of Bigfoot as being malevolent. So I, I thought of, I wouldn't think of Bigfoot as coming back and warring necessarily with man, but... It, th- that could make it interesting for the for the for the story. Maybe it's a past the turning point of uh, ecological disaster. Man has become the parasite. Oh, so that, you know. so the protector species has to choose to be physical to come back to clean out the uh, the problem. Oh well, this is this is one of the beliefs is that normally if I can touch again on Native American beliefs and what I've encountered the majority of them is it Bigfoot is a benevolent type species. It leaves you alone, et cetera, et cetera. But we have gone the wrong way. Uh, this was an LWA member saying, but we've gone the wrong way. We're not connected anymore. They, they don't respect and have that connection to the land, like how most Native Americans historically kind of did. You know what I mean? Now it's, you know, a lot of gangs are on the reservation. I mean, it's so sad what is going and they're just losing touch with their roots of their culture, right? So as they have lost their way, Sasquatch is angry with them. And, and that's where a lot of, so it, it does become a more, switches from a benevolent to a malevolent type interaction um and even that's a point of view exactly huh okay so now i got a bigfoot army yeah right and that's i I don't know i I asked that that elder i said how come i haven't seen anyone why haven't i seen bigfoot because they know you're doing good work they leave you alone wait so they're telling you that it's you're you're doing the right thing so bigfoot you don't need bigfoot not that I need Bigfoot. I was like, these people have these encounters. Lots of times it's just walking across a trail or, or running. Or, but then there are the reports of encounters that are more aggressive behavior. Mm-hmm. But I'm just saying to this elder, I've spent the last seven years of my life out here, <laughs> minimum in, in the cold season when you shouldn't have to be out there. I was, I'd be out there three, four days a week. But in the uh, late spring, summer, and early fall, I'd be out there months. I'd be out there months on end. I'm not seeing anything. And I'm out there at all hours. And I'm alone. A lot of it. I'm not seeing anything. And he's saying, because I know you're doing good work. 
They're leaving you alone. Now, a young one might mess with you, and if they do, you close your eyes and in your mind say to them, you need to leave me alone. I'm, I'm doing good work. I'm saving the planet. That was the advice you were given by Native American elders mm-hmm. on how to get rid of a troublesome of juvenile, a troublesome sasquatch. juvenile <laughs> sasquatch. Yeah, yeah. That is great. Okay, so everyone's got that now. Here's the thing. If you're not doing good work, you're going down. Yeah, Bigfoot's taking you down. Wow. He had to visit Washington, D.C. Yeah. <laughs> <gasps> it's a scene for my movie. I, I, it's going to be like Sharknado, but oh, it's going to be big with Bigfoots. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I just want, all I can say is if, if Bigfoot is real in any capacity, I want Bigfoot on my side. On your side? Oh, yeah. So that's there's enough left, even with that 0.087%. You still think there's a chance. So you're saying there's a chance. I'm saying that even though science of what we know in science and what evidence is it, there's, here's the thing, you can't prove or disprove. You can't prove Bigfoot's not real and you can't prove Bigfoot's real. Mm. That's the reality of it. You have a much better chance to prove Bigfoot is real than to prove Bigfoot's not real. You cannot prove Bigfoot is real and you can't well, prove you, Bigfoot You, you could prove real. Bigfoot was real with a body. But that's my point. You have These people who are saying Bigfoot is real, I saw this and I'm like, you can't prove that. You can't. They can't. No, no, no. That's what I'm saying. But like you can't currently, although some would even argue that the fossil record proves it. If you want to go with the, which I guess you don't like the whole the, uh, land ape. Gigantopithecus yeah. blackie. You don't go in with that. You know what? Because of the K number. What I'm telling you is, is this is a fossil from, is I think, what, 35,000 years ago? Is okay. If I have a top of my head. What you're talking about, first of all, is very small pieces of bone. N- not even an, a fully intact mandible. It's mostly jaw pieces and molars. And pretty much all of the fossils that have been collected, the few that are happening mostly in China, a lot are found while they're digging out to create the dams, fit in a shoebox. Right. We're not talking about lots and lots and lots of bones. You're talking about if this is a fossil and they've dated it and figured it was this you know, time frame and it was a primate, then all you've proven is that there was a primate that was about that size. That does not mean that that's a primate species that went extinct would be your reasoning. Okay, so my so here's the, here's the way I argue with people when I get the hardcore anti-Bigfoot stuff. And that is being a large land mammal. The large land mammals did go extinct and there was a reason they went extinct because of hunting like in north america if i'm wrong go ahead and say you're wrong because no, this is you're still this, going I'm just... that's true right i mean that's what we're taught it could be i could have been taught wrong but they were hunted to extinction but no one hunts an ape especially not something that maybe was next the next thing down in the line of intelligence absolutely not on that point no no we, we have people in current times humans homo sapiens who hunt and eat primates. Well, that's awful. What? It happens. It happens. I mean, when you, you start having bush people. I just thought that was in Indiana Jones where they eat the monkey brains. No, and it is. No, and I'm not talking about as some weird being exotic delicacy of here's something that is, you know, that just is ridiculous greed that just disgusts me. I'm talking about people who are living off the land, sustenance, needing protein. Mm. Are eating are eating primates. Whether okay. you know, the majority of the time here, we're talking monkeys. Okay. But nonetheless, this is where a lot of the dis- well, you're destroying one of my arguments. Yeah, here's one of those. Well, and here's one of the ones where like we have these arguments, but we're doing it responsibly and we're learning from oh, each yeah. other. You know, the whole um, 
the zoology, you know, the zoonetics where you get that, where the diseases start transferring. And one of the things is, you know, when you start talking about where did Ebola come from, because you get very ignorant people will think, well, it came from people who are having sex with monkeys. Oh, Ebola, yeah. It's like, no, that's not how it happened. It starts happening that we have people who, and they call it bushmeat because it's any animal that comes out of the bush. And so, so with that said, yeah, no, we have examples of humans preying on primates and especially other, you have chimpanzees that eat other monkeys. Oh, I've seen that. Yeah. Yeah. So it does happen. You were saying. Well, in order for that to have happened, there would have had to have been a more dangerous Bigfoot like uh, species that hunted Bigfoot to extinction. <laughs> uh, that, which, I, which, by the way, that's great. <laughs> I'm totally on board with that, too. Let's imagine it and let me make up a pretend name for Huge it. Huge foot. I want, I want the name Coco to be incorporated in that funky name somehow. Um, Coco. Yeah, it was my cat that I just always incorporate him to keep his little spirit alive somewhere. Um, okay, so that's so I think we've we've maybe exhausted a lot of that, but that's that, good. That little, so that's my reasoning. I do believe that's that's how I believe in Bigfoot. It's some type of spiritual type being. People are seeing something that is not a biological. You're, so you're species. right there with with alien Bigfoot, basically, because there's people that believe that too. Bigfoot in of itself is Bigfoot a is a visitor. Bigfoot in and of itself is a is a culture unto its own, and there are the, all the subcultures into it. It's mm-hmm. a man. No, it's a kind of ape. It's a different species. No, it's an alien. No, it's an alien's pet. No, it's a spirit. No, it's a whatever. Mm, okay. Yeah. That Bigfoot world. And you've looked for all of these extensively. I know. I run around in the dark, trying not to poke my eye out, trying for it to just show itself. Or people love that show. A lot of them do. Um, people can find out information about the show specifically about the show a lot of places i kind of like to go different directions with the podcast um so like i've been threatening to do let's go back tell me about your childhood did you did you grow up in the same place did you move around a lot or were you in one spot i i was born and raised in sioux falls south dakota the southeastern part of the state south dakota splits in half the missouri river splits it and that eastern side is like if you watch tv Little House on the Prairie, Rolling Hills, a lot of dairy farms. Western South Dakota is ranching land. South Dakota, interestingly enough, a lot of people don't realize the percentage of reservation to the state is the highest for South Dakota. Hmm. We have more reservation land in percentage than any other state in the union. So it's reservation land, farmland, ranching land, you know, the black up pops, the black hills. And then you have... um, You got Mount Rushmore. Yeah, that's the Black Hills. Paha Sapa, which is, the, it was the holy land for, for the Sioux Nation, and uh, which they took it from the Cheyenne. So, I mean, but uh, <laughs> that's all in that area. And then you have a few towns. You have Rapid City, which mm-hmm. is, when I was growing up, it was like maybe 60,000. My hometown was about 80,000. Then you had little kind of podunk farming towns. You had, and then you had the state capital, which Pierre is... As far as state capitals go, there's only one other state capital that has a smaller population. It is a very small town, so it's a it's a very it's a very rural state, a very rural state. Born and raised there, yes. I'm a, I'm and so you you went to the same. I mean, within so you didn't move around within that area. Did you go to the same schools the whole time with the same kids? So my parents were very young. They were high school sweethearts, and um, we moved a lot. And I don't know why. Um, and then uh, let's see here. My mom's never going to listen to this. I'll just say this. I, I had a rough childhood. I did. I My dad was uh, an alcoholic, but I had a fun dad. But Fun he, alcoholic. He was a young, well, it's not always fun. I mean, <sighs> let me say this. Um, my dad's shortcoming was, was his alcoholism. 
he was very much an absent father. Um, he wasn't abusive to me. When he was around, we could have fun. However, I was the adult. Like, I was like, that, right. uh, you know, going to the zoo was jumping the fence. Or he was always cutting corners and whatnot. He used to embarrass me. We'd, oh, <laughs> we'd go through the grocery store. I'd be with friends. And he would start eating as he goes through the grocery store. And, and, and in his mind, you pay for it if you're still eating it in the line. And I'm like... <laughs> You know, so as I'm growing up, I'm pay- carrying it to the line and like paying for it. Just he was an odd fellow. I mean, he wasn't. He didn't do it with any malevolence. He just completely, just some weird disconnection. I mean, he was a, a, an interesting fellow to say the least. Um, my folks divorced when I was very young. I think three. I mean, I could if somebody honestly asked me, "When did your folks divorce?" I don't remember. Mm. I just remember being in like second grade, and uh, my parents. We were going to live somewhere different than dad. And by that time, I'd already lived in four different spots by second grade. Oh, okay. Well, now, the way they, they, if they divorce when you're in second grade, you got to be like six or seven years old. Um, I'm a, a seven. Yeah. I'm yeah. seven in second grade, and I'd lived in four or five different spots. In the same town. In the same town. So are you going within, to the same school? So. Because that's, to me, that's very important. Um, I'm just, I like to kind of get. Yeah. With all of these episodes, an idea of what people... So I know what you're going for now. Okay, so I Yeah, had, what people were like when they kind of had some stability in like their social group or the same teachers or the same areas where they, you know, and like kids that move around a lot, they kind of have a different point of view sometimes. Yes, I see where you're going. I had three different elementary schools. Ah. And I went to the same junior high because it's a bigger... For the whole, big, for I was the whole on the, time? I grew up on the east side of town. So the same junior high and then the same high school. But during elementary school, I moved... I moved and was in different elementary schools. Was that hard? I was taller than my second grade teacher, and I'm a big goofball. Um, so I was the comic when you talk about um, alcohol and families and people generally take roles. And I was a straight-A student. No trouble for me there. I was the jocks. I didn't want to add trouble to my... My sister mm-hmm. was my sister was the black sheep. She was the um black sabbath dating the guy in the chevy nova down hanging out at older the park yeah three and a half years older and do you just have one sister yep i have a i have a stepbrother and then two stepsisters they're a stepbrother on my dad's side on my mom's side two uh stepsisters and then i have a sister uh three and a half years older than me so she was oh this is payback time so she'd be down at the park smoking cigarettes and maybe you know when she was how old she's a teenager okay she's a teenager and Teenager is 13 and it's 19. So probably 14 and up. Yeah, okay. probably, Four, you know. All right. Yeah, and um, you know, <laughs> she uh she's down there listening, you know, like April Wine and Led Zeppelin and I mean great music, you know, my sister that was cool. I didn't mind that and anything. And then I'm the skinny as a rail jock, straight A's. I mean, we've always been night and day, but she was the black sheep is my point. Mm-hmm. And uh she moved away to Seattle and then uh my mom. Um, what was the connection to move away to Seattle? A boyfriend for her. Okay. A boyfriend. So, so, so again, my folks divorced at three, but my dad's still kind of in and out of our life. And so, I think when I'm in like maybe fourth grade or something. So by this time, my sister's that teenager, right? She's now she's the one that I think, looking back, very much wanted dad's approval. She was the very femme girl with the with the feathered bangs and all that, and seeking approval from my dad. Whereas I'm so much like my dad. That I didn't seek his approval. We just would hang out and have fun and and do things. And I okay. never, you know, got that sensation of it. It's, it was just we had a very different relationship. So so my sister moves away. Meets a, has a boyfriend, moves to Seattle, 
And then um, my mom remarries, and my mom is one of the sweetest women on the planet. Sweetheart, just has some really bad tasting guys. <laughs> okay, so so I had a. That's not really crazy, you know. Yeah. That's not abnormal. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, exactly. We know we know some other people in our lives. Exactly. Um. So really, a really uh, bad individual again who had a drinking problem. Who um he had some events in his life that were very unfortunate, and I think when you have tragic events happen in your life, they're they define you in so many ways. And he went down a really dark path. And then another thing happened, and this is just somebody who became darker and darker and for whatever reason externalized it. So he became a very ugly person. And who was this person? Was my stepdad at the time. Okay. So I'm a teenager. This is like 1984 or something. I'm like 13, 14. And, uh, you know, my dad was a daredevil stuntman. So I had this dad. So 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 my sister has like you know. Wow. Okay, my sister's still around. She hangs out at the park and runs with the boys. I'm like the basketball player, a good kid. And I got my best friend. So this is this is kind of movie stuff here. This sounds like this sounds like '80s movie stuff here. It, you've got a stepdad that is problematic. Yeah. And you have a not very present, literal daredevil stuntman kind of rascally thief real dad who yeah. comes around every once in a while yeah but that would make you i would think that would make you kind of uh play up the good aspects of well i don't want to cause trouble for i don't want to make my mom's life any harder is really what it was so my dad by this time you know my dad is around but he's not really in my life very much he then remarries and it's my stepmom who i got to spend the day with today and had a great day with today here i'll stay on target my sister it's right about the time my sister leaves so visualize that i have this dad that's kind of can embarrass you and he's known throughout this town sure he's a drinker he's, all he's the infamous cops yeah he's that's john holland everybody knows there's john holland um, he starts dating my stepmom, so I get some stability and maybe get to see him a little bit more, which was nice. My mom remarries this, turns out to be this horrible person on, on multiple levels. Um, and I'm navigating teenage life, growing up with alcoholism and abuse on multiple levels. Um, so I get my best friend. The reason why I'm going to this is somebody who's going through it doesn't even go to Somebody's going through it. Somebody doesn't even go to my school where our moms were best friends. No, that'll be Michael Ann. Oh, okay. So I just wasn't <laughs> sure if you wanted me to stop. No, it's okay. So uh, our moms were best friends. and uh, The dog is barking, but we're going to keep going. Your yeah, moms are best friends. I told you it's Winnie's house. Um, <laughs> so uh, my best friend from uh, basically like third grade on. Um, it's 1984, so we got the evil stepdad. He got my dad who does this stunt that goes horribly wrong. He, it's, it's all over the news. Everybody knew my business. My best friend dies in a freight car accident. So I became a John Hughes film. In essence, <laughs> I'm also, by the way, gay. So I'm trying to process and internalize that. Then I have the evil stepdad. Were, was this something that people this. knew? No, this is 1984. I I knew it, but I, God forbid, I'm coming. I'm growing up in very. It was no way any semblance of acceptability that it is today. Right. In any capacity, let alone in a very Christian upbringing. Um. And and I mean, it's funny. Uh, there was a lesbian. In my, I mean, obviously, statistically speaking, there were a lot of lesbians there at the time. One that you were aware of. But one that I was aware of was a very stone butch woman, a heavy woman. And, and I knew her, and actually my family knew her, and she was very kind. But in my mind, growing up, I, you know, I'm attracted to women, I'm drawn to women. And I would, and what a lesbian is, is that. I'm like, that's not what I am mm. in any capacity. So I'm not that, you know. So I very much was internalized and messed up and had a, so had a lot going on. 
So my point being here, South Dakota, moved around a lot in young life, had a lot of chaos. And I tell you what, it's a spectrum. Somebody always has it worse. But I'm very grateful I have a very grounding grandmother in my life that really, you know, push always came to show. I had an example of somebody really lead me. Like I, a solid I, rock. Yeah. And I had I had some very motivating, positive teachers and some really good friends in my life. But when I uh, graduated high school, my senior year, my dad got, there was federal drug charges. I was being followed by the FBI and the DEA, <laughs> oh people who hated me. I was getting, you know, bum rushed and, you know, people trying to hurt me and I needed to get out of that state. So the day after high school, I loaded up my, my, my car and I went to Seattle because my older sister was out here and I visited That's Seattle That's what I once. was going to ask. Was it the sister coming out to Seattle for the boyfriend that made you want to come here? Well, you know, my and sister... And we have to go back to if there were people who were trying to hurt me and <laughs> I was getting bum-rushed. You can't let that yeah, sit, well, though. Uh, well, don't be on a positive podcast, but okay. Well, well no, well, it's a well, positive... No, po- no, no, a no, story... No. So, to explain, I know I said earlier that I do a generally positive podcast. Mm-hmm. And the way that I, the way that I have... Um, talked with friends about that is and we've done this a lot on the show is if it's a horrible story about something that happened to you that you can still laugh about I can, or that you can laugh about i can now oh that I can is now laugh about that it. is yeah. positive yeah so yeah we can tell a horrible story uh, i just you know i might make a joke no and it can be and again this all comes down to your perspective because it is a positive story because when you can come back and come from these bad experiences and again like i talked this is somebody who some very terrible things happened to him and he chose the dark path he externalized it and and you know it's it's all about i think those defining moments in your life about choosing how you want to react to it really really defines who you are um okay well then let's say this um it's my sister had left you know growing up She's three and a half years older than me, and we are night and day. We're different, but I love my sister. Mm-hmm. And we would have fun, and she would sit on me and tickle torture me, but she was my sister. She's now moved away, and I blow my shoulder in basketball. So my basketball, um, you know, I got like, you know, could potentially go maybe play college ball. There's nothing to do in South Dakota. So you're a gymnast, you're a cross country, you're a track person, or you play basketball. And right. if you play basketball, the longer you go, you're playing like five seasons a year, and it's elite. There wasn't even soccer there back then. So um, now I have a pretty rough home front with both parents. Uh, there's, there's not turning. It's like school is a place to just show up. Now my best friend has died. And then I think it's like a year later, I blew my shoulder. And I'm I'm kind of getting ticked off. <laughs> I, right. I, uh, I think looking back as an adult, I in, I basically internalized it. And then I had repressed anger. So... I started just being destructive myself because I didn't want to feel anything. Um, I was a Christian. I was raised Christian. I didn't want to. I, I definitely was destructive and reckless because I wanted something to happen to me. I kept seeing really amazing people dying freakishly and then horrible people doing horrible things to other people and just nothing happening to them. So I was like, right. what the, yeah, what, what's with that, God? What is with that? So, you know, coming from a 14-year-old mind, 14, 15, 16-year-old mind. So I would, uh, I was gladly, I was wanting to die. Just like, get me out of this, you know. Um, but I, I could never really take that full step. I was, I always thought about how much it would hurt my grandmother. My mom was checked out at this point. I mean, she was, uh. But this was something you were considering. Yeah. Oh, wow. You know, we had gun, we had guns in the house. South Dakota. <laughs> yeah. Know, uh, we had guns in the house. We had guns, unfortunately, in the house that were. Oh, so you weren't talking about cry for help. You were talking about doing it. 
Yeah. Because the gun is not a cry for help. Mm-mm. No, no. And in fact, you know, I'm in, I'm in a situation where we would escalate to the point, you know, and, and there's so many factors here that go into this, but abuse doesn't happen one day. It's very subtle. Um, you know, so how my stepdad began to abuse my mother psychologically, for instance, starts very subtly and you, you uh, isolate them from their friends, you start controlling, et cetera, and it leads up mm-hmm. to, so you can drive when you're 13 with a learner's permit in South Dakota. So at 14, while this is going on, I have my own car. Right. So when crap goes down, I would either leave the house or I'd get my car and I would just go and drive. So my mom would, when things would escalate and get bad enough, I'd get up in the morning and she would say, don't come home from school, go to that friend's house and I'll find you. Mm. And I'd leave for a few days and say, I'd keep going to school. I just had a bag that I'd just grab. Right, go back. I'd go to school, stay with that friend. So I was that kid that everybody kind of almost kind of felt bad for. Like, oh, you know. Okay. You know, he's got that shit life. We'll take you in. So I had a lot of friends that I could at least go stay at somebody's house or something like that. Well, (laughs) remember, see, you can laugh at it now. I remember coming downstairs to go to school one day. And the abuser, my stepdad at the time, you know, it used to be he would he would get drunk and he would reference, I'm going to kill the dog. Oh, Jesus. I'm so miserable, I'm going to kill myself. No, 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 don't kill yourself. Then it's like, I'm going to kill myself and the dog. No, don't do that. And then it's it's always, it, and it escalates. So it's like not this didn't happen one day, but it escalated to, I came downstairs and he would always reference the gun or he would let my mom go to work or something, but he had the gun on the table you know, with the Captain Morgan, and he's not letting my mom leave. And normally she would just go off to work and then, you know. So, <laughs> no, enough abuse and enough chaos has happened that you get kind of this numb state. And that's what people don't understand about victims. You know, why don't they just leave? And and me, not the one being directly abused by him. I mean, I was, you know, of course, uh, chaos and outfall and abuse in different, you know, aspects. But the direction, or I should say, the focus of the abuse is my mom. I'm I'm a by proxy, you know. I'm even kind of numb and not thinking, you know. Well, when you said it's, that's what this. people don't understand, why don't you leave? It's because the water heated up gradually, exactly. like the frog in the pan. And why don't I? Why don't I leave and say? And here's one thing. I I mean, as an adult, I even like uh, think about this. You know, I I have somebody in my life who had I can connect with very well. And the one thing that I enjoy about her the most is that she had a difficult childhood, not in the same ways, but a lot of things. And she raised her middle finger, F you, and I'm out of here and left. And I always wonder by it, like, why didn't I do that? Finally reach my point and say, F you and leave. And I don't know if it's my Catholic guilt, but I, I couldn't <laughs> leave my mom, even though she's there and she's being abused. And I would step in and she'd be like, no, go to your room. Why would I fundamentally obey her? What was it in me that would be like, I wouldn't say no, no. You know, I would say no, but I would always back down from her. So I come downstairs, guns on the table, <laughs> and uh, I head off to school. And I remember I went into a, it was probably my second class period before my friends like, hey, you know, how you doing? Oh, it's a tough night, blah, 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 blah. I came out and I matter of factly say, uh, you know, he's sitting there and the guns on the table. And he won't let my mom go to work. And my friend is like, what are you, what, what are you doing? You have to go call the police. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I suppose I should. So I just get up and walk out of class. So my junior high and uh-huh. high school years, when I think about schools now, I would get up. I would be kind of like in a fugue state and I would walk in and out of classes and teachers would kind of let me do it because <laughs> crap was going down. So I went downstairs. Well, so the teachers wouldn't try to stop you. I think they, yeah, yeah. It's a small town. People know what's going on. Wow. You know, I'd kind of like walk. I'd like I'd raise them. I'd go. And I went down and 
in a, you know, everybody knows your business then because they're the assistant principal at High and you to use the phone. The, the woman at the front desk is my forward's mother. The, the principal guy over there that I've talked to is my guard's stepdad. You know, and I'm like, well, why do you need to use a phone? Well, my stepdad won't let my mom leave work. He's holding her at gunpoint. I'm realizing what it is. And then they're all panicking. Yeah. Right? Then they send you off to the counselor and I start telling the counselor and the counselor starts crying. I'm handing her the napkin. So it was just, <laughs> it was just, it was just, you know, I, that's the, not that it's any I'm sorry. Worse. That's not funny, but that no, is funny. No, I know. Like, I, I look back at it now and just go, I feel so, I feel so much empathy for her. I mean, she wow. probably must've been young as going through, wow. but I sometimes am very reluctant and hesitant to share this because what I don't like is, uh, is pity or anything because you know i read some of these amazing books where people this guy went through rwanda and the tragedy and moved to new york became a doctor and returned back there and you know people always have it worse but yeah it sucked it it was rough so i've talked about this with a couple other people there's no way to you you just can't not have the experience of your life because other people are having the experience of theirs it's nice to be aware it's you should be aware of what the situations for other people are, but you still have to live your life with the situations that you've got and your bad is bad to you by your own understanding of it. Yeah. Like it's the thing that's real to you because you're only in your own body with your own understanding. So everyone nowadays seems to be making this. I realize everyone's had it worse and I think that's fair, but I also like to just be the voice that says, no, it's okay to feel your pain and hurt your hurt. Oh, I felt it. I've, yeah, I, I I felt it. I heard it, and I learned from it. I always like to reflect back about either, hey, what well, you know, what would I do differently? What did I learn from this? And move forward, um, and be responsible for that. So that led to, you know, you're thrown into therapy, blah blah blah. You know, what I find really ironic is the evil stepdad went into therapy and came out a more cruel individual. A, be- a better abuser yeah because he had that he knew what tools were going to be used against him next time yeah so there's oh, off again on I again wish I with him guess that yeah so there's off again on again with living with him you know because that's how the pattern goes well i'm pretty disgusted by the whole thing so i pretty much live with my manager from where i work one of my best friends i'm never around i'm never home and my mom is it's more and more fugue state and she finally gets away from him but um my remember my was my senior year my dad uh, had done this stunt that went horribly wrong. <laughs> and uh, total, okay. I don't even know what it is yet, but I'm the way Totaled seven cars that. with his body. Um, totaled seven cars with his body. With his body, yeah. My dad had a, um, well, he, the, some of the previous stunts he did went well. He, he had some Guinness Book of World Records. He was on That's Incredible a few times. And it was this last stunt. Well, I probably saw your dad doing stunts on That's yeah. Incredible when I was a kid. Yeah, yeah, you did. Connection to the... Hey, that's more than 15 years. Oh, bang. <laughs> I should actually used to be a whoa. I think I saw Boom. every single episode of That's Incredible. So if he was on it, I saw it. Yeah. All right, we're back from a quick and very important break. Um, you were telling me that your father totaled six cars? Seven. Totaled seven cars. And then you started going into some of that detail, but we need that detail. Yeah. Uh, oh, and then you went, then you said he was on That's Incredible. But let's hear about this, totaled the cars. Okay. Well, it was his third stunt. So see, his previous stunts, he was on That's Incredible. So this would have been 4th of July, 1984. I spend every 4th of July at my grandma's house. So I'm not there, which was a good thing because... As a 14-year-old, I remember looking at the drawings for it and going, this isn't going to work. 
he was kind of incorporating a blend of these two stunts, but without going into too many details here, in the interest of time, uh, he took a modified street bike, and he was going to go over, off of memory, I believe it's 40 Chevettes, side to side, and he's taking a, a ramp, and then there's no ramp on the other end. So first of all, people didn't even understand <laughs> what was going on. You know, I wasn't there, but looking at the video afterwards, people... So he was going to jump these cars like a kid making a wood ramp to jump his bike off. <laughs> Essentially. But what people didn't understand, they're only, maybe they're thinking it's a ramp to ground and he's... Yeah. But they don't understand that the ramp is bent to give him this very high elevation. And it's incorporating the two previous stunts in a way. <laughs> One of which is he, he hits a height and then parachutes down. And then the other one is, I think, at like doing like, a, I don't know, 120 down Interstate 90. He basically helps develop a drag chute for uh, drag racers, motorcycle drag racers. And it literally, you, know, you hit 120, and then he just opens the chute and gets yanked off the bike. So <laughs> I'm, I'm using my hands lots here. These 40 shots. So, so you're saying that he would be in the air, then he'd open the chute, that would yank him off the bike, and he would parachute down. Yeah, and it would slow his speed down, and he would come at this angle. Wait, there's a chute of... before he hits the ramp, and then a second chute in the air? No, no. There's a there's a there's a chute on my dad's physical body, and there's a chute on the motorcycle. Okay. And the idea is, I mean, it's been so long now, but I remember the schematics and the drawing, and I remember the physics of it, and looking at him, going, "This does not compute. This won't work." I mean, I'm, I, this is well, maybe one reason I'm so flippant about my past and I can state what somebody would think very private or very difficult to say is just to me, matter of fact. Right. How is if people start asking me, like, who I'm dating right now or something like that, I'm very private. Right. It's really interesting. I'm like a total open book. Because, well, and so much of it was everybody knew. So I'm like, here's, here's who I am. Deal sure. with it. Here's, and moving on. We all know about this. Here's what really <laughs> happened. Okay. Let's, let's go. Um, so yeah, so the idea is to gain this elevation off this modified ramp at a high speed, and a chute is pulled, slowing my dad down and the bike down, and it gets this arc, and then there's no ramp over here, so just he's slowing down, and then he... <laughs> so on the day of the event, uh, I know that the crowd at this open end, some people had started to migrate around this way. You know, around this way, no the, one can see your hand. Like here's this. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, thank you. Sorry, <laughs> sorry. So, in, in a linear line where the ramp is, mm -hmm. then you have these forty little small cars, which would be little little Chevettes. What would they equate to today? Little Honda Civics or something. Yeah. Um, the short way. So I decide, and then you had a flat ramp. You mm. had a very flat ramp, and then then there's this opening. If you think of the straight line at that end opening and behind that flat ramp, people were kind of starting to arc around to get a view. And I call these people Darwin Award <laughs> candidates. Because if you're there for an event and some guys on a motorcycle to do some crazy stunt. Don't stand in front of the Don't motorcycle. stand in front of the pathway yeah. of a motorcycle that's coming. So um, long story short, um, at the angle of the ramp, uh, do you know what a hot dog is on a parachute? When a parachute comes out, there's a very small chute that yeah, leads it. Yeah, I didn't know it was called a hot dog. It's a, I don't know if it's not its technical term, but <laughs> it's referred to as a hot dog. Sure. The hot dog is already, as he's a fifth of the way across these cars, his hot dog's already, his hot dog's already coming out. Sounds really dirty. <laughs> uh, the uh, impact 
It sounds like my dog's doing the jump. Yeah, exactly. Okay. The impact when he hit that ramp at the increased speed that he... Wait, you mean the landing ramp? The takeoff ramp. Oh, the takeoff ramp. The impact that he hit the angle at his um, chute prematurely opened. The impact smacked it. Yeah. And it, it created whatever the seam, boom, popped it out, you know. So as immediately the hot dog is coming out. So when you look at these, uh, the video and photos captured from that day, when my dad is at the spot, there's a very large orange suburban parked at a location. And he's, you know, this is split seconds is this yeah. happening. It's all. And he knows that when he goes to hit that and he goes near that part of the suburban, he has the rip cord that's up near, t- kind of connected to his helmet. In this day and age, it would be a button right on yeah. your arm. But back then, you know, he was timing it and then he's going to pull it when he sees that Suburban. And when you look at the, the footage from that day, he is already laid out in the air, perpendicular to the ground, you know, 30 feet above the cars. His motorcycle just kind of right out in front of him. And the hot dog is already out. Right. And he's at like this. So he's, in his mind, he's going to pull it. Well, his, his chute's already coming out. Right. So he goes at this parallel angle to the cars, and he goes into the cars. <laughs> he goes into the cars, and then... Now, you're talking about the bike or his body? His body, the majority. The bike, when it hit for a second, hit a couple of the car tops, mm-hmm. and then hit and went somewhere, and then the... the did, it didn't cartwheel into the crowd? Not. Oh, that's too bad. You know what did come off the bike? What, I know, these Darwin Award <laughs> candidates... The bike went in a pretty linear direction along the path because he was, you know, he, he, yeah. was, he was somewhat good at what he did. Right. He got some world records. Oh, boy. Went in that straight line and for a brief moment, if memory serves me correct, went along the car tops until it, like, I think it hit the end ramp, stumbled, but it quickly went to the ground. But when it went to the ground, the tank came off and went flying and hit one of those Darwin Award oh, candidates. Oh, did? Because it was somebody who had... You know, spun around. But my dad... Wait, now, what, did, what happened to that person? I think they broke a bunch of ribs and they oh, put okay. in an application for a Darward cannon. Dar- <laughs> okay, but they didn't They didn't die. No, they, they, they broke a couple ribs and they applied for a Darwin Award <laughs> candidate. But to win the Darwin Award, you need to die. Right, so, right. And uh, did they know. have them back then? No. Okay. Well, maybe they did. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. know. Whereas, okay, so now you're talking about it. Uh, a bike, the motorcycle has wheels, so it was able to carry momentum to at least go somewhat more forward. My dad's body doesn't have wheels, and he's far more malleable and terrible. So and he's destroying cars. When I say terrible, I mean tear your body terrible. Oh. So he's coming in at this kind of parallel above the and he comes in and his his legs go in first and there's no shoot slowing him down at this point uh it had uh, no okay. <laughs> no this was full speed his hit. his his hot the hot dog had started to come out and his shoot had just started to come out right so it's minimal it's right. minimal it's fairly minimal i mean now with the amount of schooling i had i you know we could always go back and look and start writing equations but that's neither here nor there he he had a very high rate of speed enters his legs go in and that forward motion goes in so then his tibia comes up you know he blows his ankles tibia comes up through his knee he goes down into the car he goes down into the car and that pretty much totals like one car and a half right there and his body comes down and if you if you would imagine kind of like a sardine can how it rolls back going that linear direction of the motorcycle from left to right Uh if the uh takeoff lamp is the left right is the end he's moving from left to right he went in, and then as his body's coming up through it, it crushes, it snaps his femurs, and then pulls him. So his, my dad's a big guy. He was like six, six, seven. Oh. 
So as his body comes over, and he's kind of do doing this cartwheel, but his legs are still in there. So his in the video, you can see his hand, like here's the car top. His legs went in, say, on the right side of the car. And then, and as he goes in and the, and the roof is peeling back, his arm comes in as he flips in the air and gets caught on one of the oh. cars. Oh. Rips all the skin off there. So that his skin was hanging there and somebody's like, I found his finger. It's like, no, 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 no. So I, this is what I was shown later in photographs and different things. So he inverts, his legs come up above him, and he does, so that's kind of one. Up out of the car. Well, yeah, his legs went, yeah, his legs went down and in, down and in. Oh, my God. And then his head comes up over him, you know, his, excuse yeah. me, he goes down and in with his legs, snaps his femurs, is peeling the roof off with the inertia of his yeah, body. Yeah. Now his arm is kind of on the car, and his legs come up above him, and he goes into the air, and he is gaining, because he's kind of boom and mm -hmm. gone up. And does a full somersault again. So he did two somersaults. <laughs> and the Norwegian team gave him a really low score. <laughs> anyway, oh. he does a full ragdoll somersault in the air and then lands on the ground. And when oh. he comes to a stop, and while ripping through the cars, seven cars were totaled. And His body, his body totaled seven cars. Yeah, the impact some, of, some, not the motorcycle, the impact of his body totaled seven cars. He like, as he went in, his part of his like, you know, backside crushed a hood. As he went in, he pulled through two more cars. Okay. I, I feel like I, I, I know the answer to this, but I'm going to feel real bad if, if this isn't right. He lived, right? Yeah. H how? How is that possible? So he does this pancake, lands in the ground and literally impacted his body into the ground. My best friend was there. This pulls doesn't my, sound survivable. Pulls no punches. Ambulance is on the scene. They're waiting for a Darwin Award candidate, you know, they, that my dad was. He never won it, though. Um, and they get him in, and they cut his leathers off of him, and then that's when the bleeding really starts. Oh, my now, God. Now, sidebar here for a moment. I'm in South Dakota, my grandma's house, three and a half hours away, and I knew it was going on. And as a 14-year-old, I knew very well in that moment my dad might die. This is, wow. this is ridiculous what he's going to attempt. This is stupid. And it was shown live on TV without any, like, this is really graphic or anything. So you were watching it. So I remember being at my, in fact, my cousin, I recently bumped into, you know, my cousin who reflected back to that, made some comment, you know, where I got her perspective of it. And I'm sitting there watching it and my mom is watching it. And my, my sister's in Seattle at the time. She's moved to Seattle already. And my cousins are there and they show it and you just see a violent violent crash full speed then they do the slow motion version and my mom went into like physical hysterics and I, I don't remember I just remember walking outside thinking walking off quietly and thinking oh my dad my dad my dad is dead there's no way he survived that so we start getting phone calls later on and my best friend that I referenced the one that later the following winter passed away who was there and gave me so much more insight but he was the one that has um, my mom's best friend who I talked mentally, you know, she would go to the hospital and give us updates and, and my best friend would call me and to like, tell me what was going on. In addition to, you know, my stepmom was there. My dad and my stepmom were very much together. My stepmom was there calling us, but additionally other people, cause she was pretty hysterical too, you know? Um, but he survived. I don't know how, I don't know how to tell you how he survived, but he, you know, crushed sections of his femur, snapped and crushed, tibia through the knee, blew out his ankle, uh, he disconnected several nerve bundles from his left arm when he landed somehow or something. So he could push his arm out, but not pull it in. He could push it down, but not lift it up. He oh. could, 
you know, opposites. So, which was really interesting. My dad, um, so he, he had some previous, how do you survive that experience in his life? My dad is a, I really, I've been told several times by even people on the TV, they're like, you need to write this man's life story down. You need to write this man's life story down. Cause, and it is, it's just, people think like, you, you made that up. Right. And then a friend who grew up was like, no, that's, that's just like one story. My dad. Oh man. So, um, he had two other experiences. Well, here, let me say this. So he came back from that, survived that. He was in the, he was in intensive care for a very long time. He was in the hospital for a very long time, and then he was in home care for a while. But he did recover. But being that he couldn't make a living anymore using his body, whether it was construction, modeling, welding, whatever, he, uh, he was a charmer. He was a very uh, gregarious fellow. And he also had really bad judgment in friends and gave loyalty to the wrong people and ran with a, a crowd. So my dad started dealing uh, crank. Oh, my God. Back in the 80s, also known as methamphetamine. He was a pioneer back then. Nobody knew what it was. See, South Dakota was mostly white people. We had one black student. We had, I think, a student from Vietnam. And then the rest is the minority is, is the Native American kids mm-hmm. who so sadly... By the time you come through the system, maybe two students graduate high school. It's just, it's, it's so sad. It's a truly sad, a sad cycle that goes, that, that, that persists. It's truly a sad cycle that persists. But with that said, um, the true minority or the rough people growing up is bikers back mm-hmm. in my time, back in Sioux Falls. So my dad starts, <laughs> there was a Coke dealer, there was a pot dealer, there was this. There's this new drug coming out and, you know, alcohol is a, depressant and obviously methamphetamine lifts you up and they go cranking out that's why it's called crank so when uh so 85 my dad starts dealing meth 87 my i'm being followed around by the fbi and dea thinking i'm part of this drug ring because it was a mexican cook it was across state border so when i was 17 years old my senior year uh, my dad was sentenced to 17 years in federal prison and it was, you know, I I didn't have just that to deal with. I had the evil stepdad that was, you know, would kill yeah. pets and my God. holding my mom at gunpoint. <laughs> and then my best friend died in this freak, <sighs> tragic motorcycle accident the following winter, you know. So there was a lot going on. So I just, I want, and then I kind of was very angry and and uh, picked, picked, you know, had repressed anger and looked for the wrong people and. So I made some of my own enemies. I mean, for the most part, I used to be a really, really nice kid who didn't who stayed out of trouble until I think I just got pushed so far. I just made that decision to be dark. Mm-hmm. Very briefly, made that decision to be dark, but I went really dark. I made my own enemies. So by my senior year of high school, which brought you back to this question originally, what's this about being bum-rushed? I didn't know. I, <laughs> I had been living with my manager. I didn't want to live with my mom because she was so back and forth and and I just wanted something to like to be out of it and just be somewhat anonymous. So I had been visiting my mom, I think probably to get some clothes because I officially lived there, but I was never there. And when I left and on more than one occasion, I was bum rushed. And I would never know if it was because of my dad, because my dad was in prison and they were in the process of going through the investigation and the charges. Am I not supposed to? I mean, I was told blank by my dad to be very careful because um, narcs and snitches and whatnot, and they'll hurt family members. I mean, we're not talking just Sioux Falls drug dealers. We're talking Mexican drug dealers. Right. Explain bum rush. Explain what what happened to you exactly. Okay, so uh, we'll 
just if I can finish that point. Okay. I, the, so I didn't know if this was because of my dad. Right. And uh, the drug charges. I didn't know if this was because of my evil stepdad, because this is exactly, I mean, he's slashing tires and oh my patents and doing horrible things. I don't know if this is because of my, my own enemies that I kind of made. And then I made, definitely had a battle going on with the, with the guy that killed my best friend in a motorcycle accident. So was it his friend? So I didn't know even where it's coming from. This is my point. So on uh one particular occasion, it's my senior year, I, I, I came out of my mom's apartment going to my car, and to be bum-rushed is you don't see it coming. Mm-hmm. And it's usually more than one person, and the idea is to catch them off guard, take them down, and beat the bloody shit out of them. So, and it's usually some kicks to the head, and it's and usually at the end, you give them a message. That's a bum-rush. That's at least okay. how I knew a bum-rush. That's fine. So, I just, you know, just in case there's some people that yeah. need to know what that means exactly. Yeah. So I got. Did you get a message? I got bum rushed. I got taken down with a, you know, you don't see much, but I remember what the boot looked like. The one boot was on top of my head holding me down. And then they're kneeling behind me telling me the message that, you know, I better leave. And I already wanted to leave Sioux Falls. So. Wow. So I, they just said, get out of town. That, well, that was the one message. The other one is a little too personal that I'm I'm saying something about that, you know. Oh, that's, you don't have to. Well, that's okay. But I mean, the one the one was get out of town and the other one was another part of a another So this happened a twice. I was bum rushed twice. How yeah. far apart? I, good, it, was, it was within the same school year. Okay. It was in my senior year, but I don't, one, you know, in the spring it can still be mm-hmm. snow. On, one of them was definitely snow on the ground. The other one was, it was cold. So I'd say winter and spring probably. Probably winter and spring. Wow. So, um, and within a couple months, I mean, I was gone by, I mean, by my own volition, you know, day after high school, I'm out. So Renee, who had been the straight A student, do no wrong, basketball player, is now the very angry, tasted some darkness, very, very angry, get me out of Dodge. So I land in Seattle on my sister's door. (laughs) And my sister, who used to Did you to be, fly? Did you drive? No, no. In fact, uh, my first my first time when I'd ever flown, I'd been on a plane to visit her in Seattle, like, 86, maybe. And then, um, you know, my mom is struggling. My family, you know, so we're financially... I come from slender means and, and uh, financial struggling. So, no, flight flying on a plane was not an option. Um, so, and I'm moving out there. So I loaded up my car with what few belongings I had. And, you know, my sister, my sister came back. And my sister's boyfriend's brother at the time to, to drive me out. And uh, <laughs> I haven't seen my sister really in, you know, she hasn't been around for three and a half years. So kind of unbeknownst to me, my my pot smoking, hanging out down at the river with the leather jackets and the feather bangs, you know, Led Zeppelin's sister, who was, I thought was, you know, she was cool, you know. I got along with her, is now in a, uh, not just an evangelical Christian, she is a born-again Church by the side of the road, pickets, um, speaking in tongues. Right. So when I come to live with her up on Tiger Mountain in Issaquah, no cable, no TV, um, a <laughs> born again, uh, G- praise Jesus, bring me to Jesus is what my sister wants to do. So it was. Ooh. It you, was. You you survived this for a reason, and the reason is. So she to could, come out here to be saved. to bring me to Jesus. So yeah, and I mean to bring you to Jesus, but you were already 
to Jesus because you've oh, grown up Christian. You consider yeah, yourself I mean, Christian. You know, I, I considered my, you know, I consider myself Christian. But at this point, it's very much this is all the time that the moral majority is going on. Remind you, so this is the time of Jerry Falwell, Billy Graham. I mean, I've been brought to Billy Graham crusades on more than one occasion. And uh, anyway, so now I'm living in Seattle, and I think some of the things that changed me, I, you know, I was an uber nerd. Wait, no, so you left Tiger Mountain and you got into Seattle on your own? Day after high school, I leave, my sister comes back. I'm now living in Issaquah up on Tiger Mountain with my sister. I'm living mm-hmm. with my sister, um, not going right to college because I blew my shoulder. Even though I have really good grades, I didn't end up going to UW because I didn't go in on a scholarship and stuff, so... Right, just so for people that don't know the Northwest, that's not Seattle. You're a ways out. I, I'm out, yeah, I'm out in, well, this is before it became Californianized and then all the <laughs> suburbs. This is when you could see out in Issaquah up in the mountains and the foothills, you would see cougars and black bears regularly, right. quite easily. So I got to go into, looking in hindsight, I lived in a beautiful place. It was out in the woods, you know, with my sister who loves me, who loves me, loves me, um, you know, with, with uh, what you know were her best of intentions, but that was very uh, jarring. And very difficult for me, though, at the same time, especially her not knowing that I was gay and me very much knowing that I was gay. So then that led into, you know, the whole next phase of my life. So that was I left South Dakota behind. Okay, so let's talk about what that next phase of your life was. How do you go from being in that situation to getting into college and getting into the the program that you got into and getting into the line of work that you got into? And you're in Seattle. So so this is 1987? Now, it's now 88, right before the music scene. Right before Seattle That's, well, exploded. We, we do definitely talk about music on here. And what was your, it, in this, throughout this entire story that, you, that you've been telling about your life, what has your relationship to music been? Um, I'm in South Dakota. So, you know, in, in all fairness to South Dakota, I think there were cool kids who were listening to college stations. I re- actually, Dave and Kylie. And Liz and Cammie, they did listen to cool, and Herb, they all listened to the, those cool, and they were those kids. But I was, again, um, numb. I was pretty numb. So the kind of music I listened to, reflecting back to my sister, Led Zeppelin, mm-hmm. Butt Rock, Billy Squire, Sioux Falls at that time, Ooh, you, Squire, you listened good. to either country music, very, very, very country music, or you listened to mainstream music at that time, which was either kind of becoming the more poppy stuff or the harder stuff and sioux falls the kinds of kids i hung out with we listened to aerosmith billy squire that kind of stuff so at that time i'm a huge billy squire fan in fact this is a funny funny note i was a huge billy squire fan when i was in junior high i love you dave Dave. see we know we we could have just known that without even saying i know i know i I just (laughs) and and uh, it was really funny because just growing up later on even like through my dad and stuff i did meet Famous people, like, I mean, what that's a relative term, obviously, but mm-hmm. I don't get starstruck. But I'll tell you what, Billy Squire would be the one, like, if I would seek to meet a famous person, I remember being interviewed about this, if you could meet anybody, I was like, Billy Squire. <laughs> anyway, I digress, I digress. So I'm listening to, I'm listening to, you know, growing up, I'm listening to a little bit more harder stuff, and I'm listening to Billy Squire, but then I become a Police and U2 fan. Those were, oh. my, those were my bands. Um, So I then move out to Seattle, I'm very much... A U2 fan. You're, you're, a, U, you're a U2 fan at like Unforgettable Fire going to Joshua Tree. War. Well, well, before that too. Okay. Okay. So that's, look, yeah. that was real alternative stuff 
I mean, I mean, I, arguably people would say it was all the way through, but it became very mainstream. I was learning about Echo and the Bunnymen and that type of music oh. from my other friends. From Depeche my, Mode? Yep. I listened to Depeche Mode at the time, but okay. I, w- I lean towards you 2 more, more that, I, you know what, Larry? See, that's the thing. It's, it feels like you didn't go as dark as you could have with that music because there's real, you could get, you could have gotten into The Cure and you could have gotten into And I did. I liked Joy Cure. I liked it. Yeah. Uh, well, and now... Now, well, here's what's funny. I think at the time being, I grew up and I was a drummer. It was one of my outlets. I wasn't a fantastic drummer. I wasn't a classically trained drummer in in any capacity. I didn't, you had to choose back then. You were either a band or Mm -hmm. you were an athlete. You couldn't do both. Right. You couldn't. I don't know if you can now, but at the time you couldn't. So I was a jock and then of course blew the shoulder in hindsight, really wish I could have been a drummer. But so I do more of the um, Kenny Aronoff, Larry Mullen or jazz stuff. So those are like the drummers that Larry at that Mullen, time. Larry, Larry Mullen, Larry Mullen Jr. Jr. Yeah, sorry. Uh, I listened to another podcast where they refer to him as um, Larry Mullen Senior's son. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's a good one. Yeah, so that's the kind of music I was following. So some of that more um, Cure Joy Division, which I, by the way, love. I've become the older I get, the more of a Joy Division fan I become. <laughs> but that's what I'm listening to. To you know, and now I move out to Seattle, and I did listen to alternative music. Okay, but, so music definitely played. Absolutely. And then you get to Seattle. Right at the time when something real was happening here. I am here before grunge took off. So I am trying to find myself. So first, I'm, pro- I'm taking a couple of years to process my sexual... I two things to process. I just process my sexuality and who I was, which is very separate from also... I had a lot of anger and processing to go through and a lot of PTSD stuff, if you will. Um, a lot of anger. So there's a couple of years of doing that. You know, I worked for a vet... I was a veterinary technician for off and off, like six years. Worked with big cats, worked with llamas, and I loved that, but I never wanted to be a veterinarian. I just, I have a true love for animals. And um, as his clinic closed up, I went through various different jobs. You name it, I've done a lot of different things. I'm trying to figure it out. And I went through school once, and it was physical anthropology was my degree. But it cleaved into biocultural and forensics. As I reached that point where you need to enter your junior, senior year, it, it I was really close. I was a senior year and getting, I, I don't even remember anymore. It's been so long. I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I backed off. I'm like, I'm not going to finish and get my degree. I got to figure out what I want. Plus I need to go back and work some more to pay for school. I'm, I'm putting myself through school. And when I come back in, it's like switched and, and it was a really homophobic environment in Seattle at the time with forensics. Cause that's what it switched to. It kind of became more forensics based. And I'm, and I interned there and I'm like, this is not what I want. Um, did some more, you know, went back and I went on some adventures and here and there and some whole nother stories. But okay, fell, see, fell, see fell when you into... say stuff like I went on adventures here and there and those are whole other stories, um, the whole other stories is kind of what we do. Oh, so I'm, I'm assuming are... that I'm, we can't. I'm yeah. assuming that there may be a part two maybe, to this eventually. Maybe another, maybe another time. Because we'll, yeah. we'll have to do Renee yeah. Adventures as yeah. a as another episode. So, okay. So, so so lead back eventually time comes into where I'm, you know, through my 20s, uh, you know, did a bunch of different things. Um, and I am now determining that I, I want to go back to school. I'll just put you into a time, you know, to do it, to speak temporarily or literally on a temporal scale. Time-wise, in the early, in the late 80s, early 90s, I am part-time going to school and part-time working. So I worked at Kinko's for which, a while. Which Kinko's? Redmond. Excuse me. <laughs> Redmond I part-timed. But the main one started, I was at Redmond at one point, but this is this shows you how much I don't even, like my memory's bad, because I can't remember what the district of uh, Bellevue is called. Crossroads? Yeah, it's Crossroads. 
Re- remember when there's a there's a movie theater mm-hmm. across the street from it, and there used to be a Black Angus. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And the time frame that I worked there was when the, the there was a serial killer, and he was killing girls and posing their bodies and leaving them in garbage cans. And I worked that night. You're saying you worked at a Kinko's at Crossroads? Mm-hmm. And not, that, not the one on, not the one in Bellevue, just across 405, all the way out on Crossroads. No, I worked in, no, I worked part-time every once in a while I would go down and work at Red, because Redmond was the one, number one Kinko store in the country, because they had the, some contract with Eddie Bauer and they do all those print jobs. At one point, because then it was Second Union when I worked. By the way, this is another connection. What years are you talking about working at the Crossroads Kinko's? Um... See, I have to think of events. Um, uh, Waco, when Waco went down, right? The David Koresh and Waco. Okay, so you and I. After that. You and I both worked not just at Kinko's, but at Eastside Kinko's because I worked at Bellevue One for a year. Okay. I Graveyard. Went, I Well, I was working a graveyard or an early morning shift, but I only worked like, I think. That's okay. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, or Thursday, listen, Friday, Saturday, because I had classes. During we the week. just discovered that we were coworkers in 1993. That's a high five. That's that was. It yeah. actually that one's better than the last one I tried to do in here because I I, I oh, missed. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So there you go. You are are no longer in violation of the rules. Yes. Renee, I've known you too long. I've, I, you've known me too long. and We were we, probably at a meeting or in each other's store at some point. I, well, uh, yeah. It, absolutely. Do you remember the DocuTech? Oh, yeah. The days of... I used to train people on the DocuTech. Well, it was a 5090. And then the DocuTech, there was like only one store that had it. That even. was my store at Crossroads. <laughs> it was the only DocuTech, and I was trained for it. And people would come to see the DocuTech because they were going to have more. Of course, everything changed with computers. The DocuTech had a really good. Um, that thing was like. Oh, I probably know the hell of you. Ten yards long. Yeah, but it, it had the it had a really good screen. Like you could put a photograph and then get a really good dot pattern screen that would then reproduce really well. If you knew how to use it, and I knew someone who knew how to use it, so I knew what you could get out of it. So I'd always go to other places that had Docutech and probably did this to you and said, I need you to take these band photos and give me the dot pattern. Okay, here's how you definitely know me then, Dave, <laughs> even before that. So I would be at the Crossroads store. Yeah. You're going to catch me in a lie. I'm going to confess an all-out lie. <laughs> so I am working Friday, Saturday, Sunday, or something like that. I would go to school during the week. And I'm, by the way, this is, so this is like circa, I think, 1991, 92, because I'm able to go to the gay bars. I've, I've acknowledged to myself that I'm But I think Waco's 93. Was it? Spring okay. 93, I and think. And this could be, okay, well, you know what? Here we're going to be able to time it. When did Kurt Cobain die? Oh, God, I should know. 94? Yeah, I believe so. 95? Oh, God, that's just horrible. We're going to, I don't even want to say that one wrong in here. So you get, let me find out. Well, while you're, while you're researching... I'd been at Kinko's for a little bit, you know, and I work part time, but I'd been at one store. And then when the Crossroads store opened, it was brand new. And the shifts that I took as I came in, I'd come in and, you know, I'd come in at really early at the end of the graveyard and I would start doing all the tills, counting all the machines. And then during the day that I would work there, I was the color tech on the color machines. Sure. I ran the Canon mm-hmm. copier. So when Redmond was overloaded, I would get some of their backup you get the overflow. or whatever. But what, but what the Crossroads store became known for is a gal I went to high school with. She had gone to college in Charlottesville. Her fiance at the time was Bama Regs Records, which was Dave Matthews' people. Hmm. They had moved out. We're all hanging out, partying together. I start making press kits. 
And Dave hadn't broken yet. He'd broken the East Coast College circuit, but he hadn't broken the West Coast College circuit yet. So Amy, Amy and I, these three ladies that are all like long hair, six foot tall, hippies hanging out, smoking weed, you know. And then, hey, well, Renee works at Kinko's, da-da-da-da-da. And all musicians know each other. So within that kind of scene, so I start knowing, like at at that time it was um, the off-ramp with one of the best, Mm -hmm. was one of the best, uh, that, that booker was what, who went to the tractor. You know, you start knowing, everybody starts, you start knowing audio engineers, bands start knowing each other. (laughs) I'm friends with people. So in that circle, that kind of alternative and that East Coast I-5 realm, those, somebody needed a press kit done real cheap, as in sometimes free, go see Renee. Well, that's why you worked at Kinko's if you were in the music scene, because that you needed the hookup. Well, I just, I, that, that wasn't why I did it. It just kind of organically happened that way. I knew music friends. So, so I remember that I had this very, um. (laughs) <laughs> he was a very strong Christian. He was quite the hypocrite. Him, I think his name was Aaron, and he came in and he took over the store, and he just was this, he started putting cameras up, and I had to start cutting people off. But it was back in the day, and it was during the music scene, and as things were coming, and I look back now, Dave Grohl would come in, I'd do press kits. You name, I'm not going to name drop. There, everybody would come in, and it would. I'd do the press kits, and it was hilarious. And then he'd kind of cut on, and he'd start really counting my numbers. Did you, um, he'd look at it, did mm-hmm. you charge him? Did you? I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that was, you had to have come in at some point. And yes, or, but it, or, or done something on official company business. Like that's because uh, I would go to my store to get yeah, that's whatever. True. But you if you, but no, if you had a DocuTech, that sounds right. Because I remember you used to try to get DocuTech stuff. But I wanted to throw this out. Kurt Cobain died on April 5th of 1994. It was April 94, yeah. And uh, Waco, I'm pretty sure uh, Waco happened. I want to say Waco. Waco was before. Oh yeah, it was. It was '93 because I was. It was spring of '93 because I was on tour with a band in California when it happened. Okay, right. So I had been working in downtown Redmond. Redmond, the the uh, all ages dancing and music that they would allow down there. I remember that a lot of times. The old firehouse. That that place has come up a lot in yep. this. So I. So you that. were working in that store. So I worked, well, I had worked, I lived in Redmond at the time. Yeah. I left Desiquois, lived in Redmond for a while. And then while I was down there, a friend of mine had worked at Kinko's in the Kinko's Redmond store. I worked there a little bit part-time and then the new Crossroads store was opening up and they wanted me to, you know, so that is, uh, <laughs> there's a lot of overlap of like that Godfather's Pizza. All the kids would go down to the Godfather's Pizza after the old firehouse. I miss that Godfather's Pizza. And the Wendy's. That Wendy's. I don't care about Wendy's, there. but I miss the Godfather's Pizza. It's not there anymore. Oh, Yeah. The nearest Godfather's Pizza to us is uh, like 30 miles away in Federal Way. Really? I Really? Okay. <laughs> yeah, they have the lunch buffet with, can... the really, with the really crappy pizza. Yeah. Yeah, I'll and drive then... down there sometimes just to have that. I do that for, my equivalent to that is called Taco John's. There used to be one. Oh. There used to be a Taco John's in Linwood, and I've heard a rumor that there's one at JBLM, Joint Base Lewis McCord. Otherwise, the next nearest one, to my knowledge, is Spokane. When, when you love crappy food that you get at like a fast food place. It's, there is no equivalent that you can get. There is not, you have to have that food. And I don't know why the pizza in the lunch buffet at every Godfather's tastes exactly the same, but it does. Well, I can tell you why. <laughs> Cause ahead. it comes out of the same can. Cause it can. <laughs> And but, how do you get pizza but, out of can? Oh, you do. But the thing is the entire franchise for Godfather's in the Northwest, in our part of the Northwest collapsed they all closed like right around the same time that was that was one i know of like five locations that all closed at the same time I remember, including redmond i remember hearing about that roar that was heard oh no that was your grief that I'm was sorry. my grief but a, a few years ago i uh 
a friend of mine moved to Federal Way and, and she called me up and said, there's a Godfather's here. And so I looked into it and discovered that as soon as you get out of this black hole of the Seattle region, mm-hmm. there are Godfathers again. So my nice. my grandmother just turned 103 a few days back, and my cousins. I had Cody's wedding to go to. That's yeah, uh, Cody, Otherwise, I would have Cody Votolato's wedding. Cody and Dahlia. But I honestly, I don't. I am. I cannot think of a wedding more filled with genuine love and affection for each other. But yet the guests and so much love. I've never, I hard pressed to think of a place where there's just so much love in the room. And I absolutely adore all those people. I just, my my face hurts from smiling still. With that that said, um, I would have been at my grandma's because she was turning 103. And my mother is born on the same day. With that said, my cousins came back to surprise her. um, And they flew in and they all start sending me, they're all text messaging me that day. And they're sending me photos, and they're all at Taco John's. Wait, they they took your grandma to Taco John's for her hundred and third birthday. Well, they went. It was kind of a joke, more than anything. I mean, they, you know, she was getting, she was getting like weird people. All everybody knows my grandma in Pierce, South Dakota. Um, she's. I mean, I can go to, yeah, to get to Pier on via a plane is like three flights because mm-hmm. you gotta. It's get and the closer you get within the region. Well, when I'm in about a five-hour region, if I say I'm going to Pierre, where are you going to Pierre from? I'm going to see my grandma. Who's your grandma? I'll be, you're Albina. And they just, their, their eyes light up, and she's everybody's favorite. Um, yeah, so they, they took her there knowing a joke, and they're all nice. teasing me with photos of Taco Bravos and potato lays. But it's the worst food. It's the worst food. But yet, every time no. I get home, I go there, and of course, the first thing I do is my mom just drives me straight to Taco John's. No, you got to have it sometimes. Taco John's. <laughs> Taco John's. Wait. Taco John, Taco John's. If you want a Taco John's, eat a taco or maybe even two. Taco John's, Taco John's. If you eat a Taco John's, eat for one, eat for one. Let me eat. Are or you something. telling me that Taco John's did the Chaka Khan song? Yeah. As their ad? Yeah. They're literally the best restaurant that ever existed. And, and they would do the, and they even did the whoop, whoop. Taco John's. Taco John's. Taco John's. Taco John. I used to know the whole rap. Taco John, Taco John's. If you want a Taco John's, eat a taco or maybe even two. Taco John, Taco John's. We can leave it. Taco John's. Get one for me, one for me, and one for you. One for me, more. Woo, woo. And then we go into the. And here I am, 30 years later, still singing it. <laughs> so, so here's the thing that's a permanent part of your memory. That's in there where something else could be. I'll, I'm, you know what? I I'm, I'm going to embrace that one. I can sing theme songs cringing. to cartoons I watched when I was eight years old. But there's stuff I can't remember that happened recently. Thundar the Barbarian. I can't sing the theme song to Thundar the Barbarian, but it would be a trick question anyway because there were no lyrics. Exactly. It would just be him and the animation and But some I can tell you that a rogue comet just... passed between the Earth and the Moon, tearing the Moon apart. That's thund- That's what happens in Thundar. I can see his sidekick, who's kind of like Chewbacca, but he's a wolf. What's I'm sorry, that's Ookla the Muck. Thank you. Ookla. <laughs> Wait, Ookla. hold that up. I'm going to put the nerd glasses on now. Ookla. Ookla the Muck. I can now and then, like... But I can't remember the woman's Ookla. name, which is a bummer. Tila. No, that's... that's uh... Isn't it? No, you're thinking of Shira. But no, but also Tila. They're both... Uh, oh, geez, are they ma- sisters? They're what? both masters of the universe. No, they just have to have a la or a ra. I didn't watch yeah. Masters that of the Universe. That was garbage. That it was crap. Thundar was Thunder was a different, was it, because it was, Thunder was almost there. It was like watching heavy metal, but they took like the blood and the tits out. Yeah. yeah. And there was no real heavy metal music, but it still had elements of like 
there was some cool animation and some really cool ideas. Yeah. It was this post-apocalyptic wasteland with mm-hmm. magic and technology. I love Thunder. I enjoy being able to have this conversation with you. Whereas, Do you think Ookla was Bigfoot? You know, you look back, you think, what, what the hell? You know what was probably what happened is, there you go, that was a benevolent slash malevolent bipedal hairy thing that could kick some ass. Think about it. Ookla was uh, maybe a form of Bigfoot. Well, I would like to say, it, that show, there, there were no other humanoid type creatures that were just on earth mm-hmm. so i think that's what happened yeah the, the, I, th- I think it, when it comes down to the uh, apocalyptic days stay close to your bigfoot brethren if you want to make it through right well i'll have to put that into my script was the horse that carried ukla extra sturdy you know I hope yeah so. it was like an alien horse. it, there were, yeah, it, it was weird actually yeah, the horse was different than his horse did you watch weird. the herculoids too no I don't know. I remember Captain Caveman. It just pissed me off and irritated me to all get out. Because it was just too dumb. Yeah, I just and he he genuinely caused me irritation. Was it? Why did Captain Caveman cause you? Was it because he just was hairy? I think he was so in the straight out. Was he Hanna Barbera? He was just so like it's like the Flintstones, but not. And just it annoyed me. I wanted. I wanted. You know what I liked about Thundar was it was almost a little bit of that sci-fi. Yeah. With almost kind of like the drawing style of Scooby-Doo. So did you watch like um, Star Blazers? Yeah, a few times, but I didn't really follow it. My my Saturday morning uh, cartoon viewing was based on a basketball schedule. And remember, this is a day before we could, you know, record and sure. watch. We were dependent on programming of the television okay. stations. So. so- I would personally love to sit here and talk to you about fast food and cartoons for hours, but we can't do that. So we're gonna we're we're gonna for two reasons. Um, one, we gotta keep going on the podcast, and then two, we also have gotta go eat dinner. So where we were at in the story was '90s music scene. You were getting involved with these people. We didn't know we were coworkers, sort of. Working for the same company in the stores in the same district, literally yeah. in the same, you know, in the same. I worked in a in a Kinko's in Bellevue. You worked in a Kinko's in Bellevue. Yeah. Okay. Um, we, we were both illegally making uh, press kits and posters for I our friends. did no such thing. I had a record label at the time. You have no idea. <laughs> so, so, oh, now I'm getting eyes that you all can't see. Like, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, see? Huh? Do tell. Tell me more. <laughs> um, okay. So then... You go back to school and become this Renee. So it's, so I, I had, yeah, I, I went back to school and it was part of my, um, well, then I went to, well, from there I moved and I went and worked at a collection agency. I worked on the legal department of collection agency. I was the velvet hammer. The velvet hammer? Yeah. That was your nickname or that's a That was a my position? nickname. Okay. My, they don't, your collector, your collector at a collection agency when they call you is not their real name. Huh. You know, because people will come and be very angry with you. Um, there's here was another opportunity of not getting angry, and there's no right or wrong. Let's get to a resolution. Uh, so I did that. The reason why it was really close to my school, I worked that full time to make some money. I made some good money, and then it was time to go. And I did such a good job that the company they did not have part time positions. They created one for me, so I would come in and and do that. So I did that for a few years, and at the end of that. I got my job. I switched to a job that was a graveyard. I started, I was a dispatcher at Puget Sound Blood Center, which is the equivalent of the Red Cross here in Washington State in Seattle, and was going to finishing up. And then I transferred over to the U 
and entered. I I decided it is time to go back and get this degree. And I came back instead of anthropology. Remember, high school, senior year of high school, life is awful. Renee's going through a thing. Um, school was the one place where I wasn't under physical and emotional attack. And I'd taken every possible science course, and I wanted to go graduate and go study tigers in India, Borneo. And uh, here it is now, many years later, and I've come full circle, and I'm interviewing, and I'm going to each department to find out how to study. What what really fascinates me are brown bears, and there happened to be a program called the Alaska Salmon Program. And what that is is it takes six students out to a field camp in off the map Alaska and you spend the entire summer surrounded by salmon and brown bears and you have these top um, professors in their field and uh, I was fortunate enough to uh, get get chosen received all my crazy intensive training was, that's that's funny in and of itself and so I was fortunate enough to get chosen go through all my training go spend my summer in Alaska and I knew this is what I wanted to do and then that following winter, my dad gets out of prison. Of course, my dad likes to me. He likes to do surprises, so he doesn't tell me he's out. And uh, I hear a knock at the door. It was October of 2002. And I open the door, and my dad is standing on the door. And I knew he was eventually getting out. I knew parole was coming up, something like that. But, but my dad was in prison so long that there was almost like, and things would go, and bad things would happen, which mm-hmm. is more... I mean, my dad had two Samoan hitmen make a death attempt on him, and he should have died. Oh. You think that you think the the stunt was bad? This one, I do not know how he lived through, and that is a very graphic and a very unbelievable story. Oh. You know, uh, so and then he gets transferred to another prison. There's another death attempt. So, oh. so at this point <clears throat> in my life, you know, my dad is serving this sentence. Um, there's nothing I can do. So to me to know the details of when he is or isn't going to get out on a father who lots of times hasn't showed up, when he gets out, he's going to get out. So I hear a knock at the door. I open the door. My dad is literally standing there. And um, my my partner at the time, we, we shared a house together. She said, the look on my face, it, 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 was, it was a mixture of, of emotions. It also was very difficult and painful for me. It brought back a lot of darkness. A lot of darkness. And uh, so th- so I'm trying to reconcile my relationship with my father. A lot of stuff was going on. He was treated very badly by the system. Unbeknownst to him, he was very sick. And by the following February, he had, he had passed away. So this man who is, has multiple stunts and crazy experiences, has lived through them, has survived multiple death threats by, by Samoans in federal prison, dies within five months of getting out and serving 15 years. He, it, it just, it, it, it really messed me up. Wow. It really messed me up. So uh, I kind of got angry again, and then kind of went to a dark, bad place for, for a little bit again. And, and uh, but I'll tell you, life is, you know, you, you find your direction again, you pick yourself up, and you look for that higher speaking, that higher purpose, and it brings me back to that Haida Elder again, because my dad died that, you know, February of uh, 03, and I went, I needed to get back out in the woods because I didn't get to go back to Alaska and continue the research that I loved, mm-hmm. and this, this path and this passion and this drive that I needed. And it, it, all of a sudden, it's like he's screwing it up again for me all over again. So he passes away, and I get on the phone, and I, I remember we had just had his uh, his ceremony here. We uh, 
cremated him when we had a very small ceremony, just a family. And then my sister, my stepmom, and etc. They they went back to South Dakota to have a uh, memorial for him. And I wanted nothing of it. I'm like, do you want? Don't want to go to Sioux Falls. No thanks. I in that moment picked up a phone and made some phone calls. I said, get me back in the woods. And that's the first trip that I took to Southeast Alaska to Prince of Wales Island and worked with Haida tribal members and had a very amazing experience. And that's where I grieved my father's death. Now, seven years later, you know, I then go on, uh, finish my degree, uh, work with Noah, you know, I'm going on my career path and this Bigfoot show happens right now remember when my dad died i wanted i was going through his things that's what like remember i'm that little girl i'm a seven-year-old and he's we watch in search of i mm-hmm. we watch it that was our special thing so bigfoot stories to me are my dad i feel like that little girl again and like and, and my dad one, the one of the wonderful things you know my dad was a screw-up in a lot of ways but everybody is a screw-up in some ways and they have wonderful traits in the other and mm-hmm. some of my dad's wonderful traits is his curiosity and to and to promote my curiosity and to ask me to think independently and and that exuberance he had that, that he chased and he was also a very loyal person so here i am all these years later and bigfoot had kind of left my mind but it's now the timing of the internet is now happening mm-hmm. so all those guys living in their mom's basements mailing information to each other are now creating their groups and so uh so long story short is uh I am now pursuing Bigfoot stories to feel closer to my dad, and I'm out looking for an old motorcycle. I find the motorcycle. I'm getting it repaired. I start running to Bigfoot stories. I meet Matt at the BFRO. I'm not a member, but he gives me access to the database so that I can go out where I do my field work and hear Bigfoot reports, and it just makes me feel close to my dad. So that kind of went on for like seven years. I had access. And this is Matt who's on the show. Matt Moneymaker, yeah. who is uh, the president of the BFRO, Bigfoot Field Researchers Organization. So, yeah, because it's 04, I should say six years, excuse me, because it's 04. And then in 2010, I had ended my contract at NOAA, and I either could have continued on at other contracting offers, but it was a really good time for me. I was going to go back to school and get my last degree. Um, NOAA was funding me. I was going to head down to OSU, do more, do more work funded by the Forest Service and NOAA and OSU. And I had a couple months off, and the long and the short of it is during that break, they contacted me and asked me to shoot this pilot because <laughs> my, my response was, oh, hell no. No, no, no. <laughs> I have friends who've known me 20 years who don't have a photo of me. I don't want to be on camera. I don't want to. No, no. <laughs> um, I don't want to be a household name with children all around the country. Uh, well, here's how I honestly looked at it. I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm not like, oh, I don't look good in that photo, or I'm ugly. It's just, I don't like, I, I, there, I like a little bit of anonymity. This is this is this weird, uh, this is this weird, this kind of dichotomy. I'm a very gregarious person. I love talking to strangers. I love telling stories, and I love making people happy. But if I'm not engaging with somebody, I don't want a photo taken of me, and I don't want attention drawn to me. So people will be right. like, well, that's surprising, because sometimes like you're the center of the room. It's like, no, I'm engaging with somebody. I'm a call it a storyteller, call it an entertainer in that capacity. You know, I, I wouldn't be a musician that would stand up on stage. That would be like, everybody's going to stare at me, you know, I, or if it's something I'm passionate about, you know, I'm doing a presentation on dam removals or something. Um, so that idea was absolutely not. And then the next intrinsic uh, reflex was I'm a scientist. I will get laughed at. I mean, 
if I go to look for jobs in the future, you're going to Google this, this thing called the World Wide Web. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Somebody will research my name and this is going to pop up. Oh, hell no. <laughs> so they keep, they come back. And finally, I remember I got like a third phone call because Matt is helping them find people in the Bigfoot community. Matt and the other two guys who I haven't met yet mm-hmm. who are on the show are throwing names at them. They're wanting a woman. They're wanting a woman with field creds, a degree. Mm-hmm. Whether they wanted a skeptic, I don't know. So they come back again, and Matt, unbeknownst to me, is, has me on a speaker call with Discovery Channel. And I remember saying, Matt, what part of no do you not freaking understand? I don't want to be on TV. I don't want to do this. No, thank you. I love the idea. Hey, you need a technical advisor. I will go there. I know this. I know Alaska. I don't know where in Alaska they're going. And then on the phone gets uh, Todd Miller, president of Casting and Talent. He's like, hello, Renee, Todd Miller. I'm like, uh, hello, sir. Um, Well, now that you know how I feel, um, I'd like to say thank you, no thank you. And he goes, well, wait a second. Tell me why you are so hesitant. And I say, well, um, I'm not so keen on being in front of a camera. It's not my thing. But secondly, as I am moving through my career, I'm still young here in my career. As I move forward, that's the last thing I want is people can know. He says, okay, good good point, good point. Tell you what, why don't you think about this for a week? But I highly recommend you go to your, go to your mentors at the University of Washington. Go to your mentors at NOAA. You ask them what they think. Think about it. Call me in a week. So I do. I'm like, I'll show you. <laughs> and I go down and everybody is, do it. This is awesome. This is, so, this is such a great opportunity. This is incredible. And I'm like, what are you talking about? This is So ridiculous. nobody nixed it. Nobody nixed it. And these are the people who are the tops of their <clears throat> field. These are who I, my mentors for you know, going on 10 years now. So you went into this sanctioned. Yeah, yeah. And I, so I say to them, and I'm like, well, what if, and they go, you are so niched in your field now that everybody knows you love a Bigfoot story. You, it makes you feel close to your dad that you don't really believe in Bigfoot. Do it. So I'm thinking additionally, as my friends who are, you know, somewhat in the industry a little bit will be like, TV pilots are a dime a dozen. Mm-hmm. You know, whatever. You're getting paid to go to Alaska. I think they paid us like 3,500 bucks to go film for like a week, all expenses, but okay. So I go there. Where are we going to go? Prince of Wales Island, Alaska, the exact place I grieved my father's death. I remember getting the call and being down in a laundry room and kind of getting this literally a sensation, not that I'd been punched in the stomach, but, and not queasy, but just this in the stomach. Wow. Like to me, I don't know. Some people will say odds and this and that, but I found it just really that is such a special place to me, that island and that section. So we go there. And while we're there, we're working with, you know, the staff and the crew and the people who work in the area. A lot of them are there. They're clinkets or they're haidas. And as we film, f- take this filming through we and we come back. And at the end, we're all celebrating. We're rapping. And I get invited over. But this isn't the same haida elder who said, here's the totem. But <laughs> I got invited to one of their, actually their main elders. And, um, so I find it so interesting that I sit here with the side of Elder. The first time that I was here, back in 2003, when I came back with a very small field crew of four, and we worked back country, I didn't, I knew of Haida members and tribal members, but I didn't work with any of them. And even the crew that I worked with, with these three guys, nobody knew my dad had died and I was grieving my father's death. It was private. Nobody knew. So here I come back all these years later. Nobody knows about this. I'm sitting with this Haida elder. If he has any connection to me, it's this Bigfoot Joe. We're sitting there, and he says to me, to paraphrase, the overview would be, this is a very special place to hear. You're welcome to come back anytime and sit with me. 
I know how special it is to you. Because the last time you were here, your heart was so heavy. You were, you were lost. But you know, even you thought he was gone. He was there with you then, and he will always be here with you. And if you feel lost again at any time, you can always come back here because you'll always have a special connection to your dad here. I swear to you, it was basically along the, along that lines. Nobody knew about my dad. Nobody knew that I can't. I mean, nobody from the Bigfoot show. Nobody knew that. And I just, I mean, eyes, my eyes uh, welled up with tears, and I just felt my dad just running down for me from somewhere. So to me, Bigfoot, not finding Bigfoot. Not Bigfoot TV shows where a Bigfoot story and the idea of the unknown and the possibility and whether it's some grander spiritual thing, Bigfoot is my dad to me in that way. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Thank you for telling me that story. I, that believe, is... I believe in Bigfoot, Dave. I did not expect to hear you say that on this yeah. podcast. There you go. There you go. <laughs> well, I don't, we're not going to top that. Mm-hmm. So I think we're going to call it a day and then we're gonna go eat some really good food oh we're gonna go eat some really good food i'm gonna say on our way out is there anything you'd like people to know or is there do you got any do you want to plug anything that's coming up is it the show still going yeah the show well you know what we do is uh how how television works and it's based on ad dollars and it's it's a strange uh animal in and of itself but basically you're under contract and there's uh options and you know, you film a, a production schedule under contract and then they start airing episodes and then based on that, they they will renew or not. And we're in that phase. We're currently on hiatus and we are in that phase of waiting to see if we'll be picking more episodes up. So um, I'm, I'm spending quality time with people I love, such as yourself, trying to eat healthy food, trying to recharge my soul. Um, what I'm also working on, you know, I, I am quite often asked, you know, and by this, these are those people who speak without thinking well if you don't believe in bigfoot what are you doing on the show well i i'm a very curious person and i believe in the idea of things and i'm 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 trying to solve what is my own personal riddle but more than anything as as difficult as being on average away from my home and the people i love and eating miserable food and working i don't know how the curse of bigfoot happens but we <laughs> seem to always hit this horrible cold weather for on average nine months of the year for now five years this has been my life and it's a lot of time away from loved ones. It's a, I can't even tell you how many weddings I've missed, how many births I've missed. What makes it all worth it is going to these town halls or walking down the street and family members coming up to me and saying, I watch this show with my daughter. I watch the show with my kids. And are these kids coming up or writing me and, and sending me drawings where they're the, the killer is the videos and the kids will go out and they're doing their wood knocks and I meet them and I say, this is great because, you know, it doesn't matter what I think Bigfoot is. What do you think Bigfoot is? And in essence, I am my dad now looking down to these kids and asking them the same question and that circle returns. So I'm um, passionately working on a side project that involves the park service, that involves Scholastic, that involves a little adventure kit and involves getting kids outside, you know. The book that I keep rereading, Richard Lou's The Last Child in the Woods, Nature Deficit Disorder. Boom. Read that book, Dave, because I'm trying to turn that around. Nature Deficit Disorder? Nature Deficit Disorder. The book is called, it's by Richard Louv. It came out several years ago. Louv? La- yeah. The Last Child in the Woods, mm-hmm. Nature Deficit Disorder. We're at this age where people are becoming disconnected. And I find it funny that a television show, this happens a lot, 
is getting kids to go to their parents, put down their electronic toys and say, let's go outside. Let's go. And not even just go outside and they're wanting to go outside into the woods. Yeah. Because, you know, if you don't, by the age of 12, have an, have a definite connection with kids to the outdoor world, it's gone. And National Park memberships are plummeting. And, and, I, and, I'm, and I just, I take so much personal pride and joy in knowing that this show makes a difference and it makes kids think independently and want to go outdoors. So they're going to get outside and discover for themselves. And that makes me smile. And then one of them is going to find Bigfoot. Hey, I hope so. I hope so. And I hope they hope and hope they get a really good video of it and <laughs> let me talk to them about it in detail to wonder what really happened. <laughs> All right. Let's go eat some dinner. Yeah, I like thank, the plan. Thank you for doing this, Renee. Dave, it is it's not only an honor. I love you, man. This I has been a too. lot of fun. This has been too much fun. What is this? I'm 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 thanking you. This is fun. <laughs> thank you, Renee. All right. man that that certainly was a treat having renee here for this episode i hope you all enjoyed that as much as i did i say that i i don't know if it's possible actually i i hope that you enjoy listening to the episodes and i hope that's why you come here and check them out but you know i think i'm getting the sweet end of this deal just by being able to do it really quickly i'm going to do a correction and it's a dumb correction, but a lot of them are. So whatever. The correction is, uh, you know, I say in Thundar the Barbarian, there were no other humanoid-type creatures on Earth other than Ukla, the muck. Um, you know, when we were theorizing that he was a uh, evolved Sasquatch, and that's wrong. I put on the blog page, I put the link to the, the lead-in to that cartoon, which is up on YouTube, like everything. And it, there's definitely other creatures other humanoid type creatures in that cartoon. I just remembered it wrong because I hadn't seen it since I was a little kid. So I had forgotten my fault. I don't like to leave even simple mistakes like that up there. Uh, if there are other mistakes in the episode, I don't know what they are. So, but you know what? Talking about putting stuff up on the blog page for this, go check out some of the links on the blog page at nobody'snose.com for this episode. If you're just listening to it through iTunes or through some app or, you know, off the link that I put up either on Twitter or Facebook which, by the way, you should be following Nobody's Knows on Twitter and Facebook. So go do that if you're not. But no, go go to the blog page and check out some of the links. Because on top of the fact that we talk about, you know, Godfather's Pizza and Chaka Khan and Thunder the Barbarian, uh, insane stuff like that. He, she also talks about the, the stunt that her father, Jumpin' John Holland, did that went bad. And I found stuff online. I found the video she talks about. She talks about this horrible stunt that her father did where he destroyed seven cars with his own body. And you can go watch the stunt from the early 80s where he jumps and destroys seven cars with his body. You can see it. It's crazy. And, and some other cool stuff. We, since we talk about a lot of things that are quite a bit different than what we've discussed on this podcast before. So, yeah, check it out. I, I hope people always check it out. There's some fun pictures on there and stuff, too, that we always take when we, when we record. So I do hope that people are getting the full experience of what I'm doing, going to the site and hearing the podcast and also checking out some of the articles and things and maybe checking out the store on there. Who knows? You know. So anyway, I want to remind people, do the infinity sauces thing, send them the email, get the free sauce, use Black Crown, drive around Seattle to go places you need to get, buy an old out of print excursion records release out of the store on uh, nobody'snose.com, uh, 
still wait patiently for our new shows, which are still in pre-production. And uh, please, please, please follow us on Twitter at Nosy Nobody. Like us on Facebook. Follow our Facebook page. It's facebook.com slash Nosy Nobody. I'd always try to throw some extra photos and things up there where I'm only putting them on the Facebook page. And rate and review us on iTunes if you would. People have been doing it and it's awesome. It helps. It helps people find out about the show. Uh, You know, more and more people are listening to this podcast. It's a slow moving increase, but if it does nothing else, it makes me happy and I appreciate it. So thank you all and I'll see you next time. This podcast is a product of the Nobody's Knows Podcast Network. Executive Producers, David R. Larson and K. Drake Streetman. Music for this episode provided by Polymorph from the record Artifacts, Demos, and Debris.